0: Welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. When you hear the word revolution, what comes to mind? Are people marching in the streets, rioting, conducting sabotage, going into open, armed rebellion? Because all of these acts can be considered revolutionary because they're means by which a population can replace their government, or at least radically alter its course. The American Revolution contains elements of all of these things. Many people like to focus solely on the American War for Independence, the military aspect of the Revolution, but the American Revolution really begins before the War for Independence. The first revolutionaries don't even talk about independence, actually. Uh, At least most of them don't. They're simply demanding political reform. The revolution also continues after the war for independence, as various factions hammer out a constitution that ostensibly works for everybody. I'm sorry if this episode took a while. I got to the Battles of Lexington and Concord and realized that my script was as long as a typical episode. Normally, that's when I try to find a stopping point, but I started on certain thematic notes and had been hammering on them throughout the episode, and if I'd stopped there, I wouldn't have been able to tie everything all together in a neat little package at the end. So please enjoy this unusually long episode of Relevant History. And if you feel inspired to help out, check out the Patreon link in the description. For $5 a month, you can not only support the show, but get access to my monthly video series, Dan's War College. Anyway, enough self-promotion the American Revolution doesn't have one single cause you can put your finger on. Like most revolutionaries, the American colonists have a series of grievances against their government. These grievances build up from the end of the French and Indian War in 1763 until the outbreak of war in 1775. This time period can often be hard to untangle, and... If we're being completely honest, a lot of it is very repetitive. The British government does something the North American colonists don't like, the colonists protest, things get resolved, and the cycle continues with just a little bit more bad blood between the two sides. So instead of talking about the lead-up to the American War for Independence in chronological order... I want to look at each of the revolutionaries' grievances individually. This will give us a better understanding of why they go to war. From there, we can take things chronologically. I also want to establish a mood. It's tough to be objective about something as ephemeral as the general public mood and sentiment. But... If we look at the list of grievances the founding fathers had, we can at least put our finger on the people's pulse. Before we dive in, I should also address the elephant in the room. I'm an American and therefore likely to overinflate the importance of US centric events, and I will do my best to avoid that. At the same time, as I hope to demonstrate, the American Revolution is a seismic event in world history because its impact spreads far beyond the North American continent. Without it, you almost certainly don't get the French Revolution, at least not the way it happened in our timeline. You also don't see the various Latin American independence movements, at least certainly not, again, in the same way they happened in our timeline. Two understand the grievances of the American revolutionaries, we need to look no further than the Declaration of Independence, where they spell out in explicit detail why they want to separate from the British crown. Here's what the Declaration says before we look at each grievance in detail. Quote, the history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records, for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures." He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within." He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone, for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries he has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance he has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures he has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power HE IS COMBINED WITH OTHERS TO SUBJECT US TO A JURISDICTION FOREIGN TO OUR CONSTITUTION AND UNACKNOWLEDGED BY OUR LAWS, GIVING HIS assent TO THEIR ACTS OF PRETENDED LEGISLATION. FOR QUARTERING LARGE BODIES OF ARMED TROOPS AMONG US, FOR PROTECTING THEM BY A MOCK TRIAL FROM PUNISHMENT FOR ANY MURDERS WHICH THEY SHOULD COMMIT ON THE INHABITANTS OF THESE STATES, FOR CUTTING OFF OUR TRADE WITH ALL PARTS OF THE WORLD, FOR IMPOSING TAXES ON US WITHOUT OUR CONSENT, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislatures, and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren. Or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. That's a lot of grievances. Furthermore, the language is really impassioned, as befits a bunch of revolutionaries. These are guys who start by invoking the laws of nature and of nature's God, and end by pledging their lives, their fortune, and their sacred honor. This impassioned tone is part of the colonial mood at the time. But these are controversial issues, and not everybody shares these same sentiments. So let's go through these grievances one by one and try to take a more nuanced approach and see what people are talking about and what's in the air in the colonies at the outbreak of the American Revolutionary War. Grievance number one, quote, he has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good, quote. In the colonial system, colonial assemblies have the right to pass laws, but the king has to ratify them in order for them to take effect. King George III has routinely refused to do this. Now, there's a whole grab bag of laws here, so we have to be careful. We're talking about 13 colonies with 13 administrations passing their own laws. It's understandable that the king would approve some and veto others. That's literally his job. But oftentimes the mother country seems to have little concern for her colonies. For example, in 1765, Parliament passes the Stamp Act which requires most printed materials in the colonies to be printed on special paper with an official government stamp. This act imposes a tax on legal documents, newspapers, pamphlets, and even playing cards. For all intents and purposes, it might as well be a paper tax. In response, there are widespread protests throughout the colonies, and a radical group called the Sons of Liberty even engages in violence, breaking into government offices and beating up tax collectors. The Stamp Act proves impossible to enforce, and Parliament repeals it the next year in 1766. But protesters are still subject to arrest, In Massachusetts, the Colonial Assembly issues a blanket pardon since there were so many protesters in the colony that a sizable percentage of the population is theoretically subject to imprisonment. This amnesty bill is a practical necessity. But George III vetoes it, so many Massachusetts residents, including prominent individuals, are technically wanted criminals. Like I said, it's George III's job to veto bad laws. But when he refuses to approve laws like this one, it reinforces the accurate perception that British-American colonists are second-class citizens. Now, with all of these grievances, there's controversy on both sides of the Atlantic. Many will point out to gain that the king has nothing personal to gain here. The Stamp Act and other similar laws are meant to fund the state, and Parliament controls the money. King George isn't richer when taxes are collected, and he isn't poorer when they're not. So, if you're taking that view, well... He is clearly ruling in the interests of the empire because he has no personal skin in the game either way. The second grievance in the Declaration of Independence is closely related. Quote, He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended he is utterly neglected to attend them. End quote. This refers to the governors of the individual colonies who are not elected but appointed by the king. But what are these so-called laws of immediate and pressing importance that the governors either won't enact or won't enact without the king's permission? Well, broadly speaking, they are trade laws. The British Empire operates under a mercantilist system at this time, which takes a zero-sum approach to trade. Trade with other countries is bad because some of your money is flowing out of the empire. Instead, the colonies produce raw materials and sell them to manufacturers in Britain who ship finished goods back to the colonies. And in theory, this sounds like a nice little circle of trade, but In practice, it serves to impoverish the colonies. The colonists are only allowed to sell their raw materials, tobacco, cotton, lumber, whatever, to British merchants. It's a captive market, and colonists are often forced to sell their goods for far less than they could have gotten from French, Dutch, or Spanish merchants. But the colonists still have to pay market prices for their finished goods, After all, there's nothing wrong with British manufacturers selling finished products overseas. They're bringing money into the empire. On the other hand, if British colonists sell their raw materials overseas, manufacturers in Britain might have to source their materials on the open market, and, well, that's money flowing out of the empire. The Americas aren't the only place this happens, far from it. Perhaps the most notorious example of mercantilism gone wrong is the devastation of the Indian economy, but it's easy to understand why many colonists would be upset about unfair trade laws. That said... The way this grievance is phrased makes it sound like the king is doing something unusual or improper by instructing his governors to approve or not approve different laws. He's not. The governors are his appointees. They work for him. It's also unreasonable to expect the king to allow colonial legislatures to make changes to imperial trade policy that policy is set by Parliament. Allowing Massachusetts or South Carolina to set their own trade policy would be no different from allowing Gwynedd or the Isle of Wight to set their own trade policy. From this perspective, the laws of pressing and immediate importance aren't just unimportant, they're contrary to basic governance and the rule of law. Moving on to the third grievance, quote, he has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only, quote. As with much of the Declaration of Independence, the old-timey phrasing can get confusing, but what the founders are talking about is taxation without representation. at their favorite slogan. They're saying that the Crown has only chartered colonies on the condition that the colonies receive no representation in Parliament. From a modern perspective, this seems patently unjust. If the colonies are part of the British Empire, shouldn't they get to elect representatives just like the people on the British Isles? But at the time, things aren't so cut and dried. Even in Great Britain only around 3% of the population can vote. The rest are insufficiently wealthy to qualify. According to mainstream British political philosophy of the time, the other 97% of the population has something called virtual representation, because Parliament is supposed to speak for the interests of all British people. If you follow the same logic... Why should virtual representation be insufficient for colonists if it's perfectly sufficient for most of the people in the British Isles? So, again, there is controversy on both sides of the Atlantic. Continuing, quote, He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures end quote. This refers to the seventeen seventy four Massachusetts Government Act, passed in the wake of the Boston Tea Party. The Massachusetts Government Act allows the governor, Thomas Gage, to dissolve the provincial assembly, which he does. He then appoints a new assembly which meets in Salem, about fifteen miles from Boston. The outraged members of the original assembly will continue to meet elsewhere in the state, and Gage's new assembly only ever rules Boston and the immediate vicinity, where there are plenty of British troops to protect them. This ties in with the next grievance, He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. End quote. The Massachusetts Government Act isn't the only time King George III or his governors dissolve a provincial assembly. It happens a few times, and here's another example. In 1767, seven years prior to the Massachusetts Government Act, Parliament passes the Townsend Acts. The Townsend Acts are a replacement for the failed Stamp Act we already talked about. They impose import taxes on paper, tea, glass, lead, and paint pigments. Along with this, Parliament establishes an American Board of Customs. Previously, customs in the North American colonies have been administered by the English Board of Customs, which, as you might expect, is located in Great Britain. This has proven to be impractical due to the distance, and smuggled goods are everywhere in the colonies. The new American Board of Customs is able to work far more efficiently and cracks down on smugglers. In response, in 1768, the Massachusetts Assembly issues a letter to the other colonies. The letter, written by Samuel Adams, contends that the new taxes are unconstitutional and that only the provincial legislatures have the right to impose new taxes. Three other provincial assemblies, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Virginia, officially write back to the Massachusetts Assembly that they agree with this position. Now, this letter has no legal force. It's simply a proposal to send a joint protest to the king but the idea of multiple provincial legislatures acting in concert is too dangerous and a little bit radical. So King George first asks the Massachusetts Assembly to rescind their letter. When they don't, he orders the Assembly to be abolished. And in addition to dissolving the Massachusetts Assembly not once but twice, the king will also dissolve the Virginia Assembly in 1774 for similar reasons. This might sound like an abuse of power, but in the British system of government, the monarch has the right to dissolve popular assemblies. The last time Parliament refused to be dissolved, it triggered the English Civil War and You got Oliver Cromwell in charge, and he banned Christmas, and the whole thing was a disaster, and it was so traumatic that even today, in 2023, the British monarch has the power to dissolve Parliament. In practice, they would never do it, and none ever has since 1629, but from a constitutional perspective, especially in the mid-1700s, It's a perfectly legitimate thing for the king to do. Whether it's wise and whether it's popular are separate questions, but it's certainly legal. It's also worth noting that Parliament had suspended New York's legislature in 1767 for refusing to comply with the Quartering Act, which we'll talk about in a minute, but New York backed down so the legislature was never actually dissolved in the first place. Continuing to the next grievance, quote, "...he has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise." the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within, quote. After the Massachusetts assembly is dissolved the first time in 1768, King George doesn't allow it to reassemble until 1769. On the one hand, again, he's allowed to do that. On the other hand, Regular army troops are stationed outside the assembly hall with cannons when it does reconvene, just to remind the representatives that they can be dissolved by force at any time. As a side note here, you can see that many of these grievances in the Declaration of Independence are related to Massachusetts, but many also affect all of the 13 colonies such as the next one, quote, He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands End quote. This grievance has two aspects. The first is the prevention of the population of the colonies. At the time the Declaration of Independence is written, there are around 100,000 German immigrants in what would become the United States. That's around 8.5% of the free population, and it's even more in some of the colonies. A third of the people in Pennsylvania at this time are German speakers. There would be more of them if the British government hadn't limited German immigration by statute. Many of these immigrants hold small-r Republican political views, and the government views them as potential troublemakers. For the colonists who are engaged in the project of populating a new territory, it seems as if the home islands are actively working against them by restricting the incoming population. That's the first half of this grievance. Now, The second half is Raising the Conditions on New Appropriations of Lands. Not to put too fine a point on it, the writers are talking about the appropriation of Native American territory. In 1763, at the end of the Seven Years' War, George III issues the Royal Proclamation of 1763, banning colonial settlement west of the Appalachian Mountains. The purpose of this proclamation is to ensure a lasting peace between the colonists and the Native Americans in North America. Unfortunately for everybody, this fails. In the West, European settlers frequently push the boundary, whether intentionally or because of genuine misunderstandings about exactly where the border lies. Further West... An Ottawa chief named Pontiac brings together a coalition of tribes to shake off British rule. These tribes were French allies during the Seven Years' War, and under the treaty that ends the war, their lands in French Canada are to become British. Pontiac's War sweeps through modern-day Michigan and Ohio and western Pennsylvania. It ends in 1766 with a return to the 1763 Boundary Line. Over subsequent years, the British would expand their influence with the 1768 Treaty of Fort Stanwix in the north, giving them the right to most of Pennsylvania east to the Ohio River, with the boundary between Indian lands and the colonies then following the Ohio River southwest as far as modern-day Illinois the british would also negotiate a more westerly border in the south with the 1768 treaty of hard labor these treaties are negotiated simultaneously and actually conflict so the border is not fully settled until 1770 the net result is the opening of a new frontier in what is now tennessee and kentucky but It's a closed frontier, and the colonists want to press further across it, deeper into the North American continent, and who cares who already lives there? This expansionist faction is particularly loud in New York and Pennsylvania, where land owned by the British-allied Iroquois completely blocks any westward expansion. But the British are also committed to maintaining friendly relations with the Cherokee and other tribes that neighbor the Thirteen Colonies elsewhere. This means no westward expansion as long as King George and the British Parliament are in charge. Continuing onward, quote, He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers, end quote. This is yet another Massachusetts-centered grievance. When, in 1774, the king dissolves the Massachusetts Assembly, he also fires all of the province's elected judges and appoints some of his own. It's worth noting that at this time all judges in the British Empire are royal appointees. Massachusetts had been given special permission to elect their own judges, which King George is simply revoking. Along the same lines, the Founding Fathers say, quote, He has made judges dependent on His will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. End quote. This is exactly what it sounds like. Because the judges are paid by the king, they are less likely to be attuned to colonial sentiment. But the authors leave something out the Massachusetts Assembly has repeatedly withheld the funding required for their judges' wages. So, if not them, and if not the king, then who exactly is supposed to be paying these guys? Moving on, quote, He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. End quote. This is in reference to the Board of Customs and the later Courts of Admiralty uh, which are established to raise revenues in the Americas by enforcing taxes. But the wording makes it sound like the British officers are drawing their salaries from these colonial taxes or charging more taxes than are due for some kind of personal gain. Now it's true that In earlier times, some British officers and even governors had double or triple charged people on taxes due, but these new customs and admiralty officers are paid a fixed salary, and they aren't dependent on the taxes they collect. So the only people being harassed are smugglers who are trying to get around British customs. In other words... How you view this grievance will depend on your opinions on British trade policy to begin with and whether or not smuggling is justified. In their book, In Answer to the Declaration of the American Congress, contemporary British attorneys John Lynde and Jeremy Bentham would pen the following response to the Founding Fathers. Quote, to the salary of the officers, no honest citizen in America is to contribute. Of one class of people, and of one only, can they devour the subsistence. Will the Americans confess that the class of smugglers is so numerous in that country as to entitle them to be called, by way of eminence, the people? End quote. Then again, imagine you live somewhere like Baltimore, and you want something basic like molasses, which is a major staple at the time. British molasses is derived from sugar that's raised in Jamaica, then shipped to Britain where it's subject to import taxes. Then it's processed into molasses and shipped to Baltimore where a customs officer slaps another tax on it before you're allowed to buy it. Does the French or Dutch smuggler who's coming straight from the West Indies and charging half the price start to sound a little bit appealing? I think they would. The next grievance reads He has kept among us, in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. This is 100% true. At the outbreak of the American War of Independence, there are around 8,000 British troops in the colonies. Nearly two-thirds are stationed in Boston, both because Boston has been the hotbed of pro-revolutionary activity, but also because it has a large port so the army can be relocated from there if necessary. There's a small contingent of troops in New York, but most of the rest of the forces are scattered across the western frontier. These frontier troops are there to keep the peace. They fend off Native American incursions into colonial lands, but just as often they force British settlers to observe the treaty boundaries. Most frequently they simply warn these settlers that they're on Indian land and that the king won't protect them if the tribe decides to enforce the boundary line by violence. And regardless of how you feel about this, the British monarch has always had the power to station troops in any of their domains. It's not as if George III has come up with some innovative new way of intimidating his North American subjects. He's just stationing some troops where they're needed for the security of the empire. One could even argue that the king would be grossly negligent if he didn't post troops in the colonies. Moving on. The Founders write, quote, "...he is affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power." End quote. They're referring once again to the Massachusetts Government Act of 1774, whereby the British Commander-in-Chief in North America, Thomas Gage, is appointed as civil governor of Massachusetts. In theory, the military and civil authorities remain separate. For example, soldiers don't take over the local tax office and military officers aren't appointed as judges. But having the same guy in charge of both the military and civilian administrations means that there will never be pushback by civilian authorities when the military oversteps. Or if there is pushback, Gage can simply crush it. Quote, he is combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. End quote. This is another reference to the establishment of a Board of Trade. When the Founders say the King has combined with others, they mean Parliament. And when they say, To subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution... It means they don't recognize Parliament's jurisdiction over the American colonies in areas of taxation. Quote, For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. End quote. The British Parliament has passed a bill called the Quartering Act which requires the colonies to provide and pay for the housing of British regular troops in public buildings, including not just inns and taverns, but stables, barns, vacant buildings, and, oddly enough, the houses of anyone who produces alcohol for a living. It does not, contrary to popular myth, require people to house troops in occupied private residences. And lest the occupants are engaged in the brewing trade. Anyway, while this might seem odious to the colonists, there's an explanation. Troops on the frontier are constantly on patrol and rarely stay in the same place for long unless there's trouble in the area. They... Can't afford to be tied to a local barracks, which would limit their mobility. So, while garrisoning troops in private buildings isn't ideal, it's a practical necessity given the circumstances. The part about protecting British troops by a mock trial seems to refer to a couple of specific incidents. In Annapolis, Maryland, in 1768, British marines on shore leave get into a dispute with some local citizens that turns deadly. And the citizens are shot. The marines are acquitted of murder. And in another case, in North Carolina in 1771, British soldiers shoot and kill some members of the anti-tax regulator movement who are resisting tax collectors. The soldiers are acquitted of murder since they acted in the course of enforcing the law. In both cases, many Americans allege that the trials were actually show trials. That said, it's important to note that British soldiers are never exempted from criminal law. During the time of unrest leading up to the outbreak of open rebellion, Magistrates and tax collectors are given the right to be tried in jurisdictions other than the ones they're accused in. But that's to prevent them from being tried and convicted on trumped-up charges by colonists in areas where any jury would be hostile to British officials. So, if anything, official policy is to avoid kangaroo courts. The next grievance is, quote, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. Quote. This is another reference to the British mercantile system, but it's worth noting that prior to 1764, the American colonies had enjoyed more or less free trade with the rest of the world. So it's not as if the colonies were founded with the stipulation that they only trade with the mother country. This is a change that has been imposed relatively recently. Next is, quote, "For imposing taxes on us without our consent," end quote." Once again, taxation without representation," right? The slogan. We've already gone over this, but I want to pause for a second to dispel a myth. There's a weird modern notion that the British are taxing their colonists to death in order to pay off their debt from the Seven Years' War. As with most myths, there are some small grains of truth here. In 1775, at the outbreak of hostilities, the British government is deeply in debt, and much of that debt is from costs incurred during the Seven Years' War. The war had left the empire more than £120 million in debt, with interest payments alone amounting to more than £3.5 million per year, For perspective, that's more than double the British national debt prior to the Seven Years' War, and to put it another way, the £3.5 million in interest payments is sometimes half of the national budget. There have also been isolated incidents of local officials charging more than the legal tax in order to line their own pockets. But that's the exception rather than the norm, and for most purposes there is a good reason for British taxes, and remember what is going on here. The British have troops deployed in the New World to defend their colonists from Native American raids as well as to keep colonists from sparking a costly conflict with tribes that would otherwise be friendly. They're also mindful that there may be another war with France, and In that war with France, the North American colonies may once again become a bone of contention. So, Parliament and King George are defending their North American territories just as they defend Britain, Ireland, India, and all their other colonies. And if you look at the costs involved, it's surprising just how little the British American colonists are being taxed. Keeping in mind the roughly 7 million pounds the British Empire collects in taxes in a bad year, the North American troop garrison costs approximately 200,000 pounds per year. And those are only the army forces. Governors, magistrates, and other officials also need to be paid. And if you account for the Royal Navy, which also protects American shipping the cost of defending and administering the 13 colonies is even higher. So, how much is Parliament demanding to collect? Well, the Stamp Act is designed to collect £60,000 a year in revenue, less than a third of the cost of paying the army garrison. The Townsend Acts are expected to raise an additional £40,000, bringing the total to half of the soldiers' salaries. None of that would even begin to cover administration, the Royal Navy, the national debt, or any other expenses. It's clear that the complaint here isn't the amount of taxes. Surely there are some gadflies among the colonists who would be angry about any taxes. Those people still exist today, but all of this should serve to emphasize that for the majority of angry colonists... The problem here is representation. They don't want to pay any taxes, no matter the amount, to a government that they have no say in. The next grievance is, quote, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, end quote. This refers to the Navigation Acts, which, put certain smuggling-related offenses under the domain of the courts of admiralty, where a judge alone rules on cases. But these courts have ruled on matters of trade for years, and their jurisdiction is clearly constitutional under the British system. Whether or not trial without a jury is a good idea is another question, but again, this is something that is totally supported by precedent and totally legal for the king to be doing. Moving on, quote, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, end quote. This refers specifically to charges of treason brought against American colonists. These individuals have to return to Britain for trial rather than face trial in the colonies. And, While the government pays travel costs for defendants and witnesses, they don't cover lost wages for a journey and trial that can take a year or longer. To justify this, our British authors Lynd and Bentham cite a law that was last enforced under King Henry VIII, which sounds a bit like people in the U.S. today trying to cite the Alien and Sedition Acts as workable law. Next we come to a complicated grievance, quote, For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, End quote. This refers to the Quebec Act, which is a whole can of worms in and of itself, The Quebec Act is a law passed in 1774. Among other things, the Act expands Canadian territory through modern-day Michigan, northern Minnesota, Ontario, and parts of Ohio, Indiana, and Wisconsin, which puts geographic boundaries on the expansion of other colonies alters the oath of allegiance required of all Quebec citizens to remove any reference to Protestantism, which allows the mostly Catholic population to hold public office, something they haven't been allowed to do since 1763. It also expands the use of French civil law in Quebec, something the residents are used to, but which the residents of the Thirteen Colonies consider an arbitrary government. I will let our friends Lynde and Bentham answer this grievance. Quote, what have the revolted colonies to do with His Majesty's government of another colony? Canada is not depended on, is not associated with them. Do the mighty heroes who defy the united forces of Britain begin to tremble at a single province? Are they who pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor in defense of liberty so fearful of the strength of their own attachment to liberty that they dare not look on men who have submitted to what they call arbitrary government, lest they to catch the contagion and follow the example? Are they fearful that their deluded followers may at length discover that whilst their leaders are alarming them with acts of pretended tyranny, they are really bringing them under subjugation to the worst of all tyrants? Artful, Selfish Demagogues No regulation concerning another colony can have any right to find a place in the list of their own pretended grievances. This would be answer sufficient to this article. Let us, however, see if they, going thus out of their way to make a charge so foreign to their own concerns, be compensated by any degree of candor. What is their objection to the act for regulating the government of Quebec? The first is that, by this act, the bounds of Canada are extended. There are little circumstances which materially change the nature of a transaction. These a skillful narrator tells or suppresses as may best suit his purpose. It suited the purpose of the Congress to suppress that in this act it is expressly provided that the boundaries of no other colony shall be in any wise affected that all rights derived from preceding grants and conveyances shall be saved. Had this been told, their charge was answered. That which had not been granted was the property of the king. He might do with it as he pleased, erect it into a separate colony, or an exit to any colony already established. So far, then, no injury was done. But this act has abolished the free system of English laws and established an arbitrary government. That could not be abolished which had never been established. The truth is this. Soon after the conquest of Canada, temporary provisions were made by a proclamation of King for the government of Canada. These provisions were in many cases found inapplicable to the state and circumstances of the province. They were therefore repealed. And this act was passed regranting to the Canadians the free exercise, unchecked by any civil disqualifications, of the religion in which they had been educated, re-establishing the civil laws by which, prior to their conquest, their persons and their properties had been protected and ordered. Did the Canadians complain of this alteration? No. It was made in consequence of their petition." To disobey the mandate of New England, and to listen to the humble petitions of Canada, are equally crimes in His Majesty. It is a crime to make the minutest change in the constitution of the revolted provinces, and it is a crime of the same nature not to overturn the whole constitution of a dutiful province. Not to deviate from the spirit of a charter and to observe the spirit of a treaty of peace are both acts of usurpation. To check innovations at Boston and to respect the customs and prejudices and habits of thinking in Canada are acts of the same tyranny. End quote. The next two grievances from the Declaration of Independence are summaries of things we've already talked about and that the founders want to emphasize. First, quote, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, quote. This is another reference to the suspension of the Massachusetts Assembly, the Stamp Act, and other offensive acts that many colonists collectively call the Intolerable Acts. The second, quote, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever, quote. This is yet another reference to the various state legislative assemblies. Remember, it's not just the Massachusetts Assembly that gets disbanded. It also happens in Virginia, Georgia, and South Carolina, and it almost happens in New York. The rest of the grievances don't happen until the outbreak of war between Britain and the American colonies. I'll discuss them very briefly but I want to be absolutely clear that when I start talking about how the Revolutionary War gets started, none of these things has happened yet. Quote, He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. End quote. King George does this in October of 1775 in his speech to Parliament when he declares the Thirteen Colonies to be an open rebellion. Quote, he has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. End quote. It should go without saying that this is the kind of thing that typically happens in war. Quote. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation, End quote. It's true that, as we'll see, the British will employ large numbers of German mercenaries in the Americas, but... Cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages? Anyone who listens to my show probably knows that there has been way, way more cruelty and perfidy in the most barbarous ages, and that anything German mercenaries or British troops in general do in the American War for Independence is relatively tame. Quote, he has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands, quote. This practice is called impressment, and it's a process whereby the Royal Navy forces British subjects into naval service against their will since from their point of view any American colonists are British subjects, forcing them into service is seen as perfectly legitimate. Quote, He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. End quote. By... Domestic insurrections, the founders mean simply that King George has called upon loyal British subjects to oppose the revolutionaries. As for the so-called Indian savages, they're referring to various tribes that have treaties of alliance with the British. So, basically, the government is calling on their Native American allies to help them prosecute the war. Now we know what the revolutionaries are fighting for. And, if anything, I hope we've established a general mood. And I've abandoned a chronological approach so far because, number one, it's easy to get caught up in narrative history, but number two, when we get caught up in that narrative history it obscures all the different reasons the revolutionaries are fighting, and it becomes a hodgepodge of dates, locations, and random events. But before we dive into the historical narrative, I want to talk about one more thing. The demographic makeup of the 13 colonies at the time of the American Revolution. In 1775 the 13 colonies have a population of approximately 2.5 million, compared to a British population of between 6 and 8 million. Of these 2.5 million Americans, approximately 20 percent, or around half a million, are African slaves. The majority of these slaves live in the southern colonies, working on cotton and tobacco plantations. But while slavery is less widespread in the other colonies, and most slaves are doing less horrendous work like housework, slavery is nonetheless legal in all 13 colonies at the time of the American Revolution. The bulk of the non-slave population is English, Scottish, Irish, or Scots-Irish, and we already touched on the German population. The largest remaining minority is the roughly 80,000-strong Dutch community, mostly centered around New York. A smattering of French, Swedes, and other Western Europeans make up the rest of the population. Religious diversity is also about what you'd expect for a British colony at this time in history. The vast majority of the population is Protestant, with Anglicans more prevalent in the South and others more prevalent in the north. There's a sizable Quaker population in eastern Pennsylvania, and they dominate Pennsylvania politics for much of colonial history. Most of the German immigrants are Lutheran. The bulk of the New England colonists are Congregationalists, descendants of the Puritans who had left England because they thought the Church of England was still uncomfortably close to Catholicism. And speaking of Catholicism, most of the colony's 40,000 or so Catholics live in Maryland, although many live in Pennsylvania and New York, which share Maryland's tradition of religious liberty. Almost none live in New England, where the Congregationalist Church is the official religion. In general, the colonies are a land of misfits. Anyone who isn't Anglican would have been out of place in Britain, And in this land of misfits, as you might expect, there's also a Jewish population. Although there aren't enough for bands of Jewish settlers to go west and create their own rural settlements, so most colonial American Jews work in the coastal cities where most of the commerce is. By contrast, the bulk of the population is rural. In 1775, 90% of the 13 colonies' population are farmers. Even in the South, the few wealthy plantation owners are the exception to the rule, with most settlers eking out a living on plots that are just large enough to support a family. The urban population consists mostly of merchants and traders. The Americas are a great place to do business, but they're not a destination in their own right. The largest city at the time is Philadelphia, a bustling metropolis with a population of approximately 40,000. New York City has just 25,000 residents, and Boston rounds out the top three cities with a population of 15,000. These are not the major world-class cities that they are in the 21st century. By European standards in the 1700s, they barely even count as cities. Finally, I want to emphasize that the colonists have a diversity of political beliefs. Throughout the American War of Independence, something like a third of the colonists will remain 100% loyal to the British government, and their opponents will call them Tories, although they will call themselves Loyalists. The pro-colonial, pro-independence faction calls themselves the Patriots, and also makes up around a third of the population. The remaining third or so of people are apolitical and just want to get through all this without any trouble. That's not an unreasonable position for someone who's crossed an ocean to get away from trouble of some kind in Europe. Once again, I should point out that there are regional variations in terms of political beliefs. For example, independence is most popular in New England. the American War for Independence breaks out totally by accident. And it breaks out exactly where you might expect given the grievances and trends we've been discussing. It all starts in Massachusetts. I hope my American audience will bear with me here but about half the show's audience is international, and the narrative history really starts with a small local protest called the Boston Tea Party. In 1773, the British government makes the latest of many changes to their import laws. Previously, ships from the British East India Company would deliver tea to Britain, where they would pay a customs fee before colonial or British merchants would buy the tea at auction and ship it to the colonies. This process was lucrative for a handful of merchants, but it made British tea more expensive than smuggled tea. So Parliament changes the law to allow the East India Company to ship tea directly from India to the colonies and pay a reduced import tax, or to ship it via England without paying any duties in the British Isles and just pay the taxes that are due when they arrive in the colonies. This lowers the costs of British tea, but it also cuts a number of British American merchants out of the tea trade and undercuts the lucrative smuggling market. And, of course, there's the controversial issue of Parliament issuing a tax that applies in the colonies. In response, an organization called the Sons of Liberty organizes protests throughout the colonies. The Sons of Liberty is an anti-tax, pro-colonial activist group that engages in both legal and illegal forms of protest. You might compare them to an organization like Greenpeace— Some of the more famous members include John Hancock, Paul Revere, Samuel Chase, Patrick Henry, Benjamin Rush, Benedict Arnold, John Lamb, Haim Solomon, and Samuel Adams. The Sons of Liberty is a who's who of the early American Revolution. The East India Company is sending seven shiploads of tea to the colonies. New York, Philadelphia, and Charleston will each be receiving one shipload. In those cities, the Sons of Liberty, along with organizations of smugglers, convince or intimidate British-American merchants into refusing their consignments. Basically, the tea shows up, nobody is willing to pay for it, and the East India Company ships are forced to turn away. But four ships, with the bulk of the tea are bound for Boston. And in Boston, Governor Thomas Hutchinson convinces the tea buyers to stand firm. It probably helps that two of the main buyers are Hutchinson's sons, so they can be well assured of his protection. On November 28, 1773, the first ship, the Dartmouth, sails into Boston Harbor and the arrival of this ship initiates a countdown. British law allows 20 days for a ship to unload or sail away after entering a harbor. At that point, the cargo becomes property of the crown and can be seized by customs officers. So the Sons of Liberty have 20 days to somehow stop the sale of the tea, or the Redcoats will march in, seize it, and unload it anyway. It's here that we meet the first major character in our drama, Samuel Adams. Samuel Adams is a failed businessman and successful politician. He's the leader of the local Whig Party in Boston, and his political pamphlets are widely read. You can think of these pamphlets as an 18th century blog. And on the morning of November 29th, Bostonians wake up to find the city plastered with flyers from Samuel Adams's press. They read, "Friends, brethren, countrymen, the hour of destruction or manly opposition to the machinations of tyranny stares you in the face." The flyers then go on to invite the residents to a meeting held at Faneuil Hall, which is a large public meeting hall down near the harbor. Thousands of people show up, and the crowd is so large that the meeting has to relocate more than a mile away to the enormous Old South Church in order to accommodate everybody. There, Samuel Adams proposes a public motion that the tea is to be shipped back to England and the motion supposedly passes unanimously. I don't know if I buy that, but it certainly passes by acclamation. Adams himself then goes down to the dock to order the captain of the Dartmouth to leave. The captain refuses, so Adams posts 25 men to keep watch over the ship and make sure no tea is unloaded. In his book... Samuel Adams, A Life. American journalist Ira Stoll tells us what happens next. Quote, the next morning, November 30th, the body reconvened and received from Sheriff Greenleaf an order from Governor Hutchinson to disband. Samuel Adams rose and, according to the notes of a witness present, gave a 15 or 20 minute speech in the most vehement tone. To Hutchinson's description of himself as his majesty's representative in this province, Adams replied, He? He? Is he that shadow of a man, scarce able to support his withered carcass or his hoary head? Is he a representation of his majesty? Adams added, according to this account, that a free and sensible people, when they felt themselves injured, would always and had a right to meet together to consult for their own safety. That he thought that meeting from so far as being riotous, that they were as regular and orderly as any people whatsoever, as the House of Representatives themselves, and by what he could learn, as the House of Commons. Lest the meeting or the watch on the tea ship be forcibly broken up, Samuel Adams observed that he kept a firearm in order and at his bedside, as every good citizen ought, and should not hesitate to use it. End quote. The standoff continues until December 16th, the day before the Dartmouth would have to be unloaded. During this time, two of the other three ships bound for Boston, the Beaver and the Eleanor, arrive in the harbor and are moored next to the Dartmouth. The townspeople are also working with the ship's owner during this time to resolve the crisis. The owner of the Dartmouth, a guy named Francis Roch, had already been summoned to the Boston Committee of Correspondence on December 11th. The Committee of Correspondence is a sort of shadow government that coordinates the activities of the American patriots And there are committees in all 13 colonies by 1773. As you might have guessed, Samuel Adams is an influential member of the Boston Committee and demands that Roch return to England with the tea. On December 14th, he and Roch go together to the Boston customs collector to ask him to allow the Dartmouth to leave the harbor. But the customs collector refuses. On the fateful day of the 16th, the committee meets with Roch in the morning and tells him that he needs to appeal to Governor Hutchinson in person. Governor Hutchinson is seven miles away at his country home in Milton, and it takes Francis Roch all day to travel there, present his case, and come back. More than 5,000 of Boston's 15,000 residents wait with bated breath only for Roch to return in the evening and announce to the committee that the governor has denied the request, to the surprise of absolutely no one. At this, Samuel Adams says to the assembly, This meeting can do no more to save the country. What happens next is controversial. Some sources say that this announcement from Samuel Adams is a secret signal to local patriots to begin a riot. Others say that the riot breaks out despite Adams trying to bring order to the meeting. Regardless, between a few dozen and more than a hundred men put on elaborate mohawk costumes, board the three ships by force, and throw 342 chests of tea, the entire cargo, into Boston Harbor. These mohawk costumes serve a dual purpose— Not only do they disguise the rioters, but they also send a signal that these people are Americans, not British. Why else would they be wearing such a distinctly North American wardrobe? Most people think that's the end of the Boston Tea Party, but there's an interesting little coda. The fourth tea ship bound for Boston, the William, runs aground off the shore of Cape Cod but the crew is able to salvage the valuable cargo, which is subjected to import tax and sold to a local merchant, who understandably tries to remain anonymous. In early March of 1774, the Sons of Liberty find the tea in a warehouse and dispose of it, but some has already been sold to a Boston shop. On March 7th, More men dressed as mohawks break into the shop at night, steal the last of the tea, and dump it into the harbor. The total loss amounts to nearly £10,000, or just under $2 million in 2023 money, depending on how you value it. Following the Boston Tea Party in May of 1774, the British government dissolves the Provincial Assembly in Massachusetts as we have already discussed. And in addition to disbanding the Provincial Assembly and quartering troops in Boston, Parliament also closes the port of Boston until the colonists pay an indemnity to the British East India Company for the tea that was thrown into the harbor. These are necessary measures from the British perspective. At this point, Massachusetts has proven to be totally ungovernable, and the other American colonies aren't that far behind. British Prime Minister Lord North has to do something to rein them in, or his government will effectively relinquish authority. But this series of acts, known collectively as the Coercive Acts in Britain and as the Intolerable Acts in the Colonies, sets off an escalating tit-for-tat exchange that will lead directly to the outbreak of armed conflict. Twelve of the thirteen colonies elect delegates to attend the First Continental Congress to try and coordinate a unified response to what they see as an assault by Parliament on their liberties. Georgia doesn't start sending delegates to Congress until the following year. The provinces of East and West Florida never join with the revolutionaries, nor do the British-Canadian provinces. This first Congress isn't trying to run a country. It's a gathering of representatives from a number of provinces now joining in a protest movement against what they see as government overreach. Twelve days into its session, on September 17, 1774, The First Continental Congress endorses the Suffolk Resolves. The Suffolk Resolves are a series of declarations made by the shadow government of Massachusetts, and they're about as strident as you would imagine. Among other things, they declare a boycott on British imports, demand the resignation of the royally appointed Massachusetts Assembly and the restoration of free elections, and they refuse to pay taxes. Most provocatively, they call for local militias to start holding regular drills and to elect new militia leaders. This last point is more important than it sounds. See, local militias are often led by men of social distinction in the community, people like judges, doctors, and physicians who know little or nothing of war and the Suffolk Resolves tell the militias to elect men with military experience. Despite their impassioned tone, the Suffolk Resolves don't call for independence, or even for armed rebellion, except in self-defense against aggression by the military. These early revolutionaries still consider themselves as social reformers. They're still loyal British subjects the Suffolk Resolves include 19 resolutions. And the first of these is, Whereas His Majesty George III is the rightful successor to the throne of Great Britain, and justly entitled to the allegiance of the British realm, and, agreeable to compact, of the English colonies in America, therefore we, the heirs and successors of the first planters of this colony, do cheerfully acknowledge the said George III to be our rightful sovereign, and that said covenant is the tenure and claim on which are founded our allegiance and submission. End quote. I'm not going to read the entire text, but this is the general tone. Our ancestors and the king's ancestors had an agreement for how these colonies were going to be run. We love the king, and we'd like nothing more but to keep that agreement. If only these power-hungry politicians in Parliament didn't keep trying to meddle in our affairs. There's a problem, though. The government in Massachusetts is not appointed by Parliament. It's royally appointed. If King George disbands it at the colonists' demand, he's not pushing back against parliamentary overreach. He's ceding royal authority. Perhaps this is why when a group of Loyalist Pennsylvania Quakers send a petition to the king to preserve peace at any cost, he famously says, quote, The die is now cast. The colonies must either submit or triumph. End quote. Almost a month later, on October 14th, 1774, Congress passes the Declaration and Resolves of the First Continental Congress. While the endorsement of the Suffolk Resolves was an agreement amongst the colonies, this is a formal notice to Great Britain that solidifies the boycott on British goods and spells out the demands of the Suffolk Resolves. Basically, that the elected colonial assemblies be restored— the Port of Boston reopened, and that the Colonial Assemblies alone should have the right to tax the colonies. Once again, though, the Declaration doesn't call for American independence. Far from it. The Continental Congress appeals to British common law as the basis for their complaints. Again, here's just a short excerpt, quote, The deputies so appointed being now assembled, in a full and free representation of these colonies, taking into their most serious consideration the best means of attaining the ends aforesaid, do in the first place as Englishmen their ancestors in like cases have usually done. For asserting and vindicating their rights and liberties, declare that the inhabitants of the English colonies in North America, by the immutable laws of nature, the principles of the English Constitution and the several charters or compacts have the following rights: that they are entitled to life, liberty, and property, and they have never ceded to any sovereign power or whatever a right to dispose of either without their consent: that our ancestors who first settled these colonies, were at the time of their emigration from the mother country entitled to all the rights, liberties, and immunities of free and natural-born subjects within the realm of England. That by such emigration, they by no means forfeited, surrendered, or lost any of those rights, but that they were, and their descendants now are, entitled to the exercise and enjoyment of all such of them, as their local and other circumstances enable them to exercise and enjoy." that the foundation of English liberty, and of all free government, is a right in the people to participate in their legislative council. And as the English colonists are not represented, and from their local and other circumstances cannot be properly represented in the British Parliament, they are entitled to a free and exclusive power of legislation in their several provincial legislatures, where their right of representation can alone be preserved in all cases of taxation and internal polity, subject only to the negative of their sovereign, in such manner has been heretofore used and accustomed, Again, it goes on and on and on, and this appeal to traditional English liberties does have an impact on the other side of the pond. Most members of the minority party, notably former Prime Minister William Pitt the Elder, see the colonists' demands as reasonable, and warn that while the Crown may hold the advantage in any potential rebellion, there's a possibility that the colonists might win and break away from Britain altogether. Unfortunately for the British, like I said, William Pitt, the Elders' Party, the Whig Party, is the minority party at this time, and the majority Tory party is in no mood for compromise. While the colonists might not quite be committing treason, they're coming awfully close. If the government compromises now, what demands might the colonists make in the future? The same day that they sign the Declaration and Resolves, October 20, 1774, the First Continental Congress forms the Continental Association, which is essentially a trade league. The Articles of the Continental Association establish an official start date for the boycott on British goods, December 1, 1774, if Congress's demands are not met. A further deadline is also set for September 10, 1775. If the government still does not yield by that date, the Continental Association will cease all exports as well as imports. So, how is this shadow government going to enforce their boycott? Well, Through social pressure, and if we're being honest, the occasional bit of mob justice. There are several points to the articles, and I don't want to read the entire thing. Here's a much-edited version, and you'll know when I'm skipping something because each article is numbered. Quote, 3. As a non-consumption agreement, strictly adhered to, will be an effectual security for the observation of the non-importation, we as above solemnly agree and associate that from this day we will not purchase or use any tea imported on account of the East India Company, or any on which a duty hath been or shall be paid, and from after the first day of March next we will not purchase or use any East India tea whatsoever, Nor will we, nor shall any person for or under us, purchase or use any of those goods, wares, or merchandises we have agreed not to import, which we shall know, or have cause to suspect, were imported after the first day of December, except such as come under the rules and directions of the tenth article hereafter mentioned. 5. Such as are merchants, and use the British and Irish trade, will give orders as soon as possible to their factors, agents, and correspondents in Great Britain and Ireland not to ship any goods to them on any pretense whatsoever, as they cannot be received in America. And if any merchant residing in Great Britain or Ireland shall directly or indirectly ship any goods, wares, or merchandises for America, in order to break the said not-importation agreement, or in any manner to contravene the same, On any such unworthy conduct being well attested, it ought to be made public, and on the same being so done, we will not from henceforth have any commercial connection with such merchant. 7. We will use our utmost endeavors to improve the breed of sheep, and increase their number to the greatest extent, and to that end we will kill them as sparingly as may be, especially those of the most profitable kind nor will we export any to the West Indies or elsewhere, and those of us who are or may become overstocked with, or who can conveniently spare any sheep, will dispose of them to our neighbors, especially to the poorer sort, upon moderate terms. 8. That we will, in our several stations, encourage frugality, economy, and industry, and promote agriculture, arts, and the manufactures of this country, especially that of wool, and will discountenance and discourage every species of extravagance and dissipation, especially all horse racing, and all kinds of gaming, cock-fighting, exhibitions of plays, shows, and other expensive diversions and entertainments. And on the death of any relation or friend, none of us or any of our families will go into any further mourning dress than a black crepe or ribbon on the arm or hat for a gentleman, and a black ribbon and necklace for ladies." and we will discontinue the giving of gloves and scarfs at funerals. 9. That such as are vendors of goods or merchandise will not take advantage of the scarcity of goods that may be occasioned by this association, but will sell the same at the rates we have been respectively accustomed to do for twelve months last past. And if any vendor of goods or merchandises shall sell any goods on higher terms, or shall in any manner or by any device whatsoever, Violate or depart from this agreement, no person ought, nor will any of us deal with any such person, or his or her factor or agent, at any time thereafter for any commodity whatever. 11. That a committee be chosen in every county, city, and town, by those who are qualified to vote for representatives in the legislature, whose business it shall be attentively to observe the conduct of all persons touching this association and when it shall be made to appear to the satisfaction of a majority of any such committee, that any person within the limits of their appointment has violated this association, that such majority do forthwith cause the truth of the case to be published in the Gazette, to the end that all such foes to the rights of British America may be publicly known and universally condemned as the enemies of American liberty, and therefore we respectively will break off all dealings with him or her. Twelve. That the committee of correspondence in the respective colonies do frequently inspect the entries of their custom houses, and inform each other from time to time of the true state thereof, and of every other material circumstance that may occur relative to this association. Thirteen. That all manufactures of this country be sold at reasonable prices, so that no undue advantage be taken of a future scarcity of goods. Now, keeping in mind that something like a third of the population is in support of the Continental Congress, you can see how this can actually work. Think of what happens on social media today. Two or three percent of the population complain about somebody, and they get canceled because nobody wants to go against that vocal minority. Well, no. Multiply that vocal minority by 10 or 15 times. Imagine you're a totally apolitical merchant in Charleston, South Carolina. You don't care one way or another about this business. Your family moved to the colonies 30 years ago when you were a child to escape the unrest from the Jacobite rebellion in Scotland. And you are only interested in living a peaceful life. But If you buy tea or wool or sugar or anything else from British traders to sell in your shop, your name will be published in a pamphlet and 30% of your customers will stop buying. Participating in the embargo is not a political act at this point. It's just good business, and even most loyalists go along with it. From 1774 to 1775, more than 95% of British trade to the American colonies dries up. Five days after announcing their boycott, on October 25th, Congress sends a petition to the king asking him to intervene. It includes a list of grievances that sounds awfully similar to the one in the Declaration of Independence with one important difference. While in the Declaration of Independence, Congress will blame King George for all their grievances, in this petition to the king, they blame Parliament for everything and begin their conclusion by stating, We ask but for peace, liberty, and safety. We wish not a diminution of the prerogative, nor do we solicit the grant of any new right in our favor. Your royal authority over us, and our connection with Great Britain, we shall always carefully and zealously endeavor to support and maintain. End quote. By indicting Parliament and praising the king, Congress is proposing something not unlike the relationship Britain would ultimately adopt with many Commonwealth nations. Loyalty to the British crown, but not to Parliament. Unfortunately, the petition to King George arrives in England as part of a huge intelligence package. The royal governors are dutifully sending copies of every newspaper, pamphlet, and other document from the colonies, and the petition is buried in the mix when the whole package, which Benjamin Franklin describes as heaps of documents, is presented to Parliament. It doesn't seem like anybody in Britain reads it, or if they do, they don't understand its significance. King George certainly never sees it, so we'll never know what he would have done. He may have gone along with it. At this time, the king personally collects rents on swaths of colonial territory, something he would presumably continue to do had the Thirteen Colonies become something like an early version of Canada. As it happens, the petition goes unanswered. On October 26, 1774, the First Continental Congress officially adjourns, although they vote to meet the next year if the crisis has not been resolved. From here, things accelerate faster than anyone could have anticipated. Starting in early September, the new military governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Gage, orders his troops to seize various gunpowder storehouses throughout the colony. On September 1st, redcoats impound the contents of the powder house at Somerville, the largest gunpowder storage site in Massachusetts, just a few miles outside of Boston. Rumors go out that British troops have fired on Boston, and within hours, hundreds of militia from surrounding towns are marching towards the city. It doesn't take long before they figure out that there's no shooting and they all go home, but the events of the day have alarmed both sides. Governor Gage scales back plans for future seizures and writes to London begging for more troops. Quote, If you think 10,000 men sufficient, send 20. If one million is thought enough, give two. End quote. The government sends him 400 additional Marines. Meanwhile, the Massachusetts militia companies organize a system where at any given time, a third of the men have their muskets loaded and are ready to march out at a minute's notice. Hence the term Minutemen. Paul Revere, a Boston silversmith and well-known patriot author, serves as a spy for the militia. In December, He warns militia near Portsmouth, New Hampshire that British troops are en route to Fort William and Mary to seize the powder magazine there, and the militiamen relocate the powder before the British regulars arrive. In February of 1775, a force of over 200 British regulars goes to Salem, Massachusetts to confiscate some cannons. They're held up by a bunch of locals with a drawbridge and militia members are able to hide the cannons during the delay. The troops are eventually forced to withdraw as hundreds of militia pour in from the surrounding countryside and march alongside them menacingly. There's even some pushing and shoving in this event. All of this has not gone unnoticed in London. In his book, Revolutionary America, 1763-1815, to 1815, A Political History, University of Edinburgh Professor of American History Francis D. Cogliano writes, quote, On February 9, 1775, Parliament adopted a resolution that declared Massachusetts to be in a state of rebellion. As a consequence, the legislation prohibiting the trade of Boston was extended to all of Massachusetts. In March, the prohibition would be extended to all of New England, and in April, to Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, and South Carolina. On February 27th, Parliament endorsed a conciliation plan proposed by the Prime Minister. According to Lord North's proposal, if the colonies undertook to tax themselves and to make provision for the support of the Army and Navy, Parliament would only levy external taxes. These measures demonstrate an effort on the part of the government to isolate and punish New England, especially Massachusetts, while offering a return to the status quo ante with regard to the other colonies. This program revealed the government's complete misunderstanding of the American situation. By 1775, most Americans had rejected Parliament's right to levy either internal or external taxes. Moreover, the committees of correspondence had successfully convinced the colonists that the cause of Massachusetts or New England was also their cause. Perhaps the most astute British analysis of the situation came from the king. Several months before Parliament endorsed North's plan of reconciliation, George III wrote of the Americans, quote, We must either master them or totally leave them to themselves and treat them as aliens. End quote. On April 14, 1775, Governor Thomas Gage receives orders from London. He is to use whatever means necessary to put down the rebellion and capture its leaders, Samuel Adams and John Hancock, who by now have fled Boston and are living in the nearby town of Lexington. Gage wastes no time. Four days later, on the night of April 18th, Preparatory to launching his raid, he orders a cavalry patrol of the surrounding area as far as Lexington to get the feel for what's going on in the countryside. This patrol actually backfires, though. It alerts the residents that something is afoot, and militia are already starting to muster when Paul Revere and fellow Bostonian William Dawes ride into town to warn them. Revere and Dawes continue west, intending to warn the residents of the town of Concord as well. Concord is where the elected Colonial Assembly is meeting, and it's also the site of a major gunpowder dump, so it's expected that after moving through Lexington, the Redcoats' ultimate goal will be Concord. Along the way, Revere and Dawes encounter Samuel Prescott, a Concord-based doctor on his way to Lexington. As it happens, he's also a patriot and a former son of Liberty, and he offers to go with them to Concord because the locals will know him and take his warning more seriously than the word of a couple of strangers. It's a good thing Prescott joins them, too, because further along the road, the men encounter another British patrol. Paul Revere is taken captive, and while he manages to escape in the morning, he would have been too late to warn the people of Concord. William Dawes gets away, but he's forced to double back towards Lexington to lose the British. Samuel Prescott manages to flee in the correct direction and warn the people of Concord that the Redcoats are coming. He doesn't get as much credit as he should, but then again... Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Samuel Prescott doesn't have the same ring to it. When Prescott arrives in Concord, 17 miles from Boston, it triggers an alarm system that the people have been using and refining since the French and Indian War. The town bell rings out to summon militiamen from the countryside, while pre-assigned riders set off for neighboring towns to spread the word. By dawn, the gunpowder and artillery in town are being moved off into more rural hiding places. Hundreds of militia have assembled at Concord, and dozens more are rallying in Lexington between Boston and Concord. Meanwhile, a force of 700 British infantry under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith have taken boats across the Charles River from Boston to Cambridge and are already on their way. About half of these men are grenadiers, the hard-hitting heavy infantry of the British army, while the other half are light infantry equipped for flanking and scouting. They believe they have the element of surprise on their side, in which case there should be no local resistance when they go to raid first Lexington and then Concord. Then, around 3 a.m., British officers start hearing militia alarm bells, and they're aware that they've lost the element of surprise. Colonel Smith sends the light infantry on ahead to Concord under the command of Major John Pitcairn, while following behind with the slower grenadiers. Smith also sends a messenger back to Boston to let... Gage know that the jig is up and ask for reinforcements. In Lexington, Militia Captain John Parker decides that his 77 men are no match for the superior force of redcoats. He orders them to stand in formation on the town green, but to remain off to the side of the road and not impede the soldiers from marching onwards to Concord. Remember, nobody is at war yet. This is an armed protest, and... Parker has every reason to believe that the protests are just passing through. Now, I say that there are 77 men here because we have a list of 77 names of militiamen who are present on the morning of April 19, 1775. Some British sources report between 200 and 300 men, so there's some controversy, but I'd be surprised if there are more than 150 colonial militia on the Lexington Town Green. That's just my opinion. Anyway, Major Pitcairn has been ordered to search Lexington, not simply march his men through. So he has his men surround the militia and orders them to lay down their weapons. The militiamen look to Captain Parker, who tells them to go home but Parker has a sore throat and his voice is raspy and everyone is already talking over each other so the men are slow to follow his orders. In any event, nobody lays down their arms. Then the first shot of the American Revolutionary War is fired. One of the strange things about the famous shot heard round the world is that nobody knows who fires it. Most of the British sources say that it's fired by an American colonist. Generally, some guy off in the bushes or in the window of one of the houses in the village. The American accounts all say that it's a British soldier who fires the shot. Some say it's an officer shooting at a prisoner who's taken advantage of the confusion to try and escape. Pretty much the only thing that everybody agrees on is that the shot is not fired by any of the militiamen or British regulars who are actually pointing their rifles at each other. Immediately upon hearing a shot go off, soldiers on both sides open fire. The militiamen stand confused for a few moments, at first believing that the regular soldiers are only firing powder with no musket balls. But when they hear the groans of wounded men and see men around them going down, they quickly turn tail and run, pursued by a British bayonet charge. With the militia driven off, Pitcairn's men begin to get out of his control, and their search of Lexington threatens to turn into a full-on looting. Fortunately, Lieutenant Colonel Smith shows up with the grenadiers and restores order. The good news is that by the time of the fighting, Patriot leaders Samuel Adams and John Hancock have been successfully evacuated. The bad news is that the road now lies open for the Redcoats to march westward to Concord, which they do. By this point, approximately 400 militia members have gathered in Concord. Around 250 of them march out to meet the Redcoats, expecting to see a smaller force, but when they spot them a mile and a half from the town, at the sight of 700 redcoats, the militia wisely retreats to Concord, where the leaders concur and decide to withdraw from the town across the north bridge, which, as you might expect, is north of town. Withdrawing across the bridge achieves two things— First, it removes the militia from the town proper, so the Redcoats are free to proceed with their search without having to disperse the militia by force. This delay also allows more militia to stream in from surrounding areas, adding to the total numbers. Secondly, by withdrawing, the militia has created a choke point between themselves and the regular troops. If the Redcoats want to disband them, they're going to have to cross the bridge. At first, Militia Colonel James Barrett lines his men up a full mile from the bridge, well clear of the town. They've taken up position on a hill where they have a good view of what the British are up to. Lieutenant Colonel Smith orders most of his men to search the town of Concord, which they do in good order. They even pay for food at the local tavern, although they do throw hundreds of pounds of musket balls into the mill pond and smash the wheel carriages for two large cannons they find. But for the most part, the search is a bust. Most militia supplies have already been relocated. Smith orders a detachment of grenadiers to block the South Bridge to stop any militia... from coming in from the south of town, and he sends another detachment of men to block the north bridge. A small expedition sets off across the north bridge, steering clear of the militia troops to march north and search the militia colonel James Barrett's personal farm, where there is rumored to be a militia supply cache only 115 redcoats are left to guard the north bridge from the now 500-strong militia. Sensing his advantage, Barrett advances his militia to within 300 yards of the bridge. He orders them to load their weapons, but not to fire unless fired upon. The militia line up two abreast and begin to advance towards the bridge itself. This is an attempt to intimidate the Redcoats into withdrawing. And Captain Walter Laurie, the commander of the Redcoats at the bridge, sends a message to Lieutenant Colonel Smith in town asking for reinforcements, and in the meantime he withdraws his light infantry across the bridge. They also line up in a long column with the officers near the front to command the action. They're in what's called a street-firing formation, designed for a narrow front of men to fire a volley, run to the back of the formation while the next rank moves up, and so on. But this is an advanced, complex drill. And many of these particular British troops are relatively green, and there's a lot of confusion as they try to form up. Now... Walter Laurie, the commander of these redcoats, does not give the order to fire, and, as a matter of fact, much like in Lexington, nobody's sure who fires first. But according to Captain Laurie's own report, it's a British infantryman who either panics or can't hear his orders properly. At this single shot, two more British soldiers fire their guns, and. This causes the entire front rank of British troops to fire, killing two militiamen. At this, the militia returns fire, wounding 13 British soldiers, including four officers, and killing three more. Outnumbered, Lorry's men run back to town. On their way, they pass Lieutenant Colonel Smith who is on his way to relieve them with a force of grenadiers. When Smith arrives at the bridge, the militia hangs back. Barrett has pulled most of them back to the hill, with a small group of men under the command of Major John Buttrick holding a defensive line behind a stone wall. Then there is a bizarre ten-minute pause in the action where nobody fires. In his book, Paul Revere's Ride, American historian David Hackett Fisher writes, The Grenadiers saw the Minutemen behind their wall on high ground and halted while still out of range, 200 yards away. The British officers came to the front and studied the American force with a new respect. Amos Barrett wrote later, If we had fired... I believe we could have killed almost every officer there was on the front, but we had no orders to fire, and there weren't a gun fired. Colonel Smith observed the strength of the American position and the steadiness of the men who held it. He wisely ordered the grenadiers to fall back. They stayed about ten minutes and then marched back. While the two forces confronted one another, a strangely surrealist scene ensued. A madman wandered unmolested through the center of the action. He was Elias Brown of Concord, a crazy man, his minister called him. He had long been allowed to move freely in the town, doing odd jobs for his neighbors. That day, he had been happily pouring hard cider for men on both sides. His Concord cider had fermented all winter and was twenty-proof by April. Elias Brown did a di- brisk business that day. When the fighting began at the North Bridge, he went among his New England townsmen and said that he wondered what they killed them, the regulars, for. They were the prettiest men he had ever seen and kept him drawing cider all the time. For a moment, this crazy man may have been the sanest person in town. End quote. Following Smith's withdrawal, the American militia stays put. They even allow the detachment of men sent to search Colonel Barrett's farm to return across the bridge unmolested. But as Lieutenant Colonel Smith wraps up his search of Concord, more militia are continuing to pour in, not just into Concord itself, but along the road leading from Concord back to Lexington. By late morning, when the search is complete, Approximately 1,000 militia are in the area, outnumbering the British regulars. What begins as a simple march back to Boston soon turns into a panicked retreat. About a mile outside of Concord, at a place called Brooks Hill, 500 militiamen have mustered south of the road. A detachment of British troops charges them to try and drive them off, but they hold their ground and inflict several casualties, forcing the British to withdraw under fire. A little further down, at a bend in the road now known as the Bloody Angle, militia fire from the woods and kill or injure 30 more British soldiers. The Redcoats are only able to escape by breaking into a run. They can make better speed on the road than the militia can through the woods, and by running, they're able to barely make it back to Lexington. By now, there are more than 2,000 militiamen in the field, with more still coming in. Major Pitcairn's horse has bolted, and he's running on foot with the men. Additional ambushes have further denuded the British troop numbers, who are almost out of ammunition as well. After all, they had equipped for a quick expedition, facing light, if any, resistance. When they got up this morning, they weren't expecting to face a pitched battle. The British are saved from further disaster by a thousand troops under the command of Earl Hugh Percy. After Lieutenant Colonel Smith had requested reinforcements early in the morning, Governor Gage had given Percy orders to march out with a relief force, which has just now arrived in Lexington. With the presence of this superior British force, the militia is forced to hang back, although some individual militiamen take potshots at the regulars from the woods. Still, Lexington is a relatively safe place, so Earl Percy, who has taken overall command of the British allows the men to eat lunch and rest until mid-afternoon. This only exacerbates the situation, allowing the militia force to grow to around 3,000 men and set up further ambushes along the road to Boston. Not only do the British have to contend with these ambushes, but militia have also fortified the village of Menotomy, which lies along the road forcing the regular troops to clear the village building by building. Percy does the best he can, and he sends out flanking parties ahead of the main column to clear ambushes. But his men are frustrated, and some begin to commit war crimes, like refusing to accept people's surrender or firing on unarmed civilians in the village because you never can tell who might be a militiaman. At the end of the day, Percy isn't even able to get his men all the way back to Boston. The road is too dangerous. Instead, he holes up in the city of Charlestown, which is separated from Boston by the Charles River and later evacuates by boat. This is an unmitigated disaster. Not only has armed conflict broken out between regular soldiers and local militia, but the regulars are now bottled up in Boston. Some are with Percy in Charlestown still, which sits at the end of a peninsula attached to the mainland by a narrow neck at the west end. The rest are a little further south in Boston proper, which at this time also sits at the end of a peninsula between the Boston Harbor and the Charles River. This isn't the big fat peninsula we know today. Most of that land was reclaimed in the 1800s. During the American Revolution, Boston is connected to the mainland only by a thin stretch of land to the south called the Boston Neck, which the British are able to fortify. And so they hold Boston for now, and their troops can pal around town and even get supplies and messages via the Royal Navy. It's not as if they're completely trapped, but that's about as far as it goes. Remember, throughout the rest of the 13 colonies, there are only a few thousand British troops. So from a geostrategic perspective, it's not how the British would have preferred to start this war. That said, Keep in mind that nobody planned for shooting to start at this time and place. The Second Continental Congress hasn't even sat down yet, and they won't for almost another month until they convene on May tenth, seventeen 1775. Nobody ordered a rebellion. Nobody planned one. The colonies have united in an armed trade protest, and all of a sudden there's a major rebellion in Massachusetts. The other colonies haven't even agreed to help. Not even the Massachusetts Provincial Congress has prepared for this scenario. As militia forces dig in around Boston, it becomes clear that the militia will need artillery to break through the British defenses. To that end, on May 3rd, the Provincial Congress promotes then-Captain Benedict Arnold to Colonel and dispatches him to recruit men to seize Fort Ticonderoga, a strategically important British fort in far upstate New York that controls the portageway between Lake George and Lake Champlain, a key link in any inland logistics route between British Canada and the Northern American colonies. More to the point, Fort Ticonderoga has a large supply of cannons that could be useful in a siege. Arnold works quickly and joins up with a Vermont militia called the Green Mountain Boys, led by frontiersman Ethan Allen. By the pre-dawn hours of May 10th, just a week later, the combined force of less than 100 men is assembled near Fort Ticonderoga, ready to strike. Ticonderoga is an inland fort, and since the British took Canada from the French in 1763, it's only had a small garrison. Even so, the fifty or so defenders have the advantage of walls and cannons, so the attackers will have to catch them by surprise. Arnold and Allen's men run out of the nearby woods towards the fort, and are quickly spotted by a single sentry. He tries to fire a warning shot with his musket, but his gun misfires, and he runs away into the fort, and the American militiamen run in behind him. It's still dark out, and most of the small garrison is in bed. The militiamen quickly run into the barracks and wake them up to inform them that they have just been captured. By the time the British commander, Captain William Delaplace, even knows that he's under attack, Fort Ticonderoga has already been seized. This is a huge win for the Americans, and it's accomplished with no British casualties and only one slightly wounded American who gets caught by a bayonet. This raid is successful, but so is the following raid further north to Fort Crown Point on the south shore of Lake Champlain. Arnold and Allen's militia make a similar surprise attack with similar results, and even capture the bulk of the British fleet on the lake. And most importantly to the broader war effort, they're able to capture 180 cannons including heavy siege guns that could come in very much in handy in the Siege of Boston. On the same day that Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen capture Fort Ticonderoga, May 10, 1775, the Second Continental Congress is convening in Philadelphia. The membership is largely the same as the First Continental Congress, with a few minor differences and one important one. Peyton Randolph, the President of the First Congress, will be President of the Second, but will almost immediately be recalled to Virginia to serve as President of the House of Burgesses, the Virginia Assembly. He is replaced in the Continental Congress by a 32 year old attorney and state legislator who's little known outside of Virginia, a guy named Thomas Jefferson. The Second Continental Congress also sees the additions of Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania and John Hancock from Massachusetts, who becomes president of the Congress after Randolph leaves. This second Continental Congress will serve as the de facto government of the 13 colonies until 1781 when the Articles of Confederation are adopted. One of Congress's first acts is to create the Continental Army. They do this on June 14, 1775, by simply declaring that the roughly 22,000 Massachusetts militia engaged around Boston are now the Continental Army. Understand that no one has given the Continental Congress authority to do any of this. There has been no royal decree. There has been no election except for the elections for the assemblies of the various colonies. These people have simply decided to declare the existence of an army, and now there's an army. It's amazing how that happens sometimes. Now, to be fair, I should note that there are at this point militias training in almost every colony. Even as Congress is meeting, newly raised Pennsylvania militiamen are drilling on the green outside. Outside of Boston, militias from around New England have joined the fight. Even as many Massachusetts militiamen are returning to their homes to tend to their crops, Nathaniel Green arrives from Rhode Island with 1,400 men. And if you want a good example of the anti-parliament but still fundamentally loyal nature of some of the early revolutionaries, look no further than these guys who come, quote, in his majesty's service and in the pay of the colony of Rhode Island for the preservation of the liberties of America, end quote. To command their new continental army, Congress elects Virginia representative George Washington as the commander-in-chief on June 16th. Washington had served as a first a lieutenant colonel and then a colonel of the Virginia regiment during the French and Indian War. We touched on some of his service in one of the more recent episodes. While he started out as a green officer and made some blunders early on, he had ended up on frontier duty in the west and had there proven himself highly capable at logistics and recruitment. In other words, he's not necessarily the guy you want in charge in any given battle, but give him command of the entire army, and he's going to put a good-sized force in the field and keep it supplied. At the end of his military commission, Washington had returned home and married a wealthy widow named Martha Dandridge Custis, whose husband had left her a large and profitable plantation, including almost 90 slaves. After becoming one of Virginia's wealthiest men virtually overnight, Washington would become a respected politician in the colony, and would be selected as a delegate to both the first and second Continental Congresses. Perhaps most interestingly of all for the man who will become America's first president, Washington is a political moderate. While he's opposed to British tax policy and supported the boycott on British goods, he's been wary of any moves to provoke a military conflict. He's even spoken at length against the idea of American political independence. But now that war is at hand, Washington believes that the British must be driven off of American shores. He is also humble in his public speeches. When Congress votes to make him commander-in-chief, he says, quote, I am truly sensible of the high honor done me in this appointment. Yet I feel great distress from a consciousness that my abilities in military experience may not be equal to the extensive and important trust. Lest some unlucky event should happen unfavorable to my reputation, I beg it may be remembered by every gentleman in the room that I this day declare with the utmost sincerity, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. Quote. Washington's appointment is timely. Hundreds of miles away in Massachusetts on June 17, 1775, one of the most iconic battles of the war is being fought, the Battle of Bunker Hill. Following the American encirclement of Boston, authorities in Britain have finally started to take General Gage's calls for reinforcements more seriously. They send more troops to Boston, bringing the size of the force in the city to more than 6,000. Eventually, by the end of the siege, it will rise, according to some accounts, to more than 9,000. They also send three generals who will become important in the early part of the war, Generals William Howe, John Burgoyne, and Henry Clinton. Along with General Gage, they form a plan of attack to break out of their encirclement. The first step is to launch an amphibious assault north of Boston across the Charles River to the Charlestown Peninsula. This peninsula is only lightly defended by colonial militia, and it should be easy to drive them back. Thomas Gage pairs his military planning with an olive branch. On June 14th, he issues a proclamation granting amnesty to any rebels who lay down their arms unless your name is Samuel Adams or John Hancock. There are few takers. Instead, the colonists are already taking steps to fortify the Charlestown Peninsula. They have occupied Bunker Hill, a tall hill at the northwest of the peninsula close to the land bridge, where cannons can be brought in to fire on Boston. And on June 16th, a force under the command of Colonel William Prescott moved southeast, closer to Boston, to occupy a shorter hill called Breed's Hill, where colonial cannons could also be used to fire on Boston. The colonists are building a walled fortification with platforms behind the wall for shooting at the enemy, and it's in a strong defensive position. These are the beginnings of a small fort. And when British sentries spot this, their commanders decide to launch their attack the next morning before the defenses can be completed. General Howe, the senior British officer, is in overall command and orders the attack force to assemble first thing in the morning. Unfortunately for the British, it takes more than six hours for their troops to assemble and get to the boats. Howe's force of 2,000 troops sails for the far eastern end of the Charlestown Peninsula, where they intend to form up and move around Breed's Hill from the north. They'll encircle it cut it off from any reinforcements from Bunker Hill or the mainland and force the troops there to surrender, and then they can push forward and deal with any Americans on Bunker Hill. Speaking of Bunker Hill, General Howe sees the American troops there and assumes that they are reinforcements already on the way to Breed's Hill, so he himself calls for more reinforcements. These British troops will ship over shortly, bringing the total on the British side to around 3,000 troops. I should point out at this time that estimates vary for the number of American troops involved. The classic narrative is that the Americans are outnumbered, but there seem to have been around 3,200 colonial troops in the battle altogether, which would mean they outnumber the British. This confusion probably arises from the fact that these are militia troops that often show up to the battlefield and leave it at will. So, there are probably no more than around 1,500 colonial soldiers actively involved in the fighting at any given time. Preceding the landing of their army, the British have bombarded the colonial position on Breed's Hill, The bombardment only takes out one militiaman who unfortunately is killed. But while the Royal Navy ships in the Charles River are imposing, their guns are designed primarily for shooting at enemy ships and can't really shoot high enough to hit the colonial fortifications. British guns in Boston, meanwhile, barely have the range. But the bombardment is enough to halt any further work on the fortifications, since the militiamen at least have to take cover. When Howe's troops land, they march as planned for the area north of Breed's Hill, where they can get around the colonial position. Now, you might be wondering why they don't march around the south side of the hill, where... They could take advantage of supporting fire from the Royal Navy and their artillery across the river from Boston. The answer is that the town of Charlestown lies at the south end of Breed's Hill, and Charlestown is full of colonial militia. If Howe tries to march his men around the south side of Breed's Hill, they'll come under fire from the town, which means they'd have to get into bloody, messy, street-to-street fighting and... Urban combat is rarely a good idea, no matter what historical era you're in. So, how either has to go north of Breed's Hill and surround it, or make a direct assault. In fact, the colonial forces in Charlestown do play a role in the battle. When British Brigadier General Robert Pigot's reinforcements land slightly south of where Howe's men landed, they come under fire from snipers in the town. Ultimately, hundreds of the British reinforcements have to divert to set fire to the buildings in order to force the militia to retreat. By burning down the buildings, they avoid urban fighting for the most part. Also, they are assisted again by an artillery barrage from the British fleet, but they are still bogged down and not able to get involved in the fight for Breed's Hill. House troops face a few issues as they approach the colonial north flank. The militia have lined up behind a rail fence which provides a little bit of protection, and the land is crisscrossed by more fences that force the redcoats to keep stopping and dressing their lines every time they climb a fence. Because this whole area is a no-man's land... The Charlestown Peninsula has been mostly abandoned since April, and in the two intervening months the hay has grown waist-high, which makes it harder to walk. Worst of all, the British have brought cannons with them, but due to a logistical screw-up, they've brought the wrong caliber of cannonball. So an attack that's supposed to go forward under cover of an artillery barrage instead has to proceed with no cover whatsoever. If that's not enough, at this particular moment, the supply situation favors the colonists and not for the reasons you'd expect. Despite being hemmed up in Boston, the British have an open sea connection to the rest of the British Empire and their troops are very well supplied, perhaps too much so. They're wearing heavy wool coats that are great in winter but are too hot in the summer sun. They're carrying a heavy kit with enough gear to survive for weeks in the field. All of this expensive kit weighs them down and tires them out. Meanwhile, the colonial militia are lightly equipped and dressed for the occasion. Unfortunately for the colonists, they are also short on gunpowder, so they need to conserve their ammo. While it's not clear who says it, one of the colonial officers orders the men not to fire until they see the whites of their enemy's eyes. In other words, don't waste your powder on long-range shots. So as the over-equipped regulars move forward slowly, firing ineffective long-range volleys and tiring themselves out, the colonial militia waits until the enemy gets within about 50 yards, before returning accurate, effective, short-range fire. After receiving a few of these volleys and suffering heavy casualties, the British troops break and retreat. At the same time, a diversionary attack against the American fortification on Breed's Hill, led by General Pigot, also fails, since it doesn't draw off any more colonial troops. Howe and Pigot decide to attack again. This time, Pigot's attack on Breed's Hill will not be a feint, but will have more men to support it. The second British attack fails again, with even more men wounded. The third time, Howe orders his men to drop all their non essential gear and move forward only with their weapons and ammunition. He also orders the main body of British troops to launch a frontal assault on Breed's Hill directly, with only a token diversionary force to attack the guys at the fence line north of the hill. At this point, the colonial position is desperate. Men are running out of ammo and withdrawing to the relative safety of Bunker Hill, while General Israel Putnam, the Overall, American commander is struggling to find fresh, fully armed men to send forward. The defenders on Breed's Hill now number only around 700. When the third British attack comes, the defenders expend all of their ammunition before the fight devolves to -to hand-to-hand combat. General Putnam and Colonel Prescott manage to salvage an orderly retreat. The men at the fence line withdraw in good order, continuing to lay down fire against the British and cover the retreat of the rest of the men. The forces in Charlestown are also able to escape before the defenses on Breed's Hill fall and they're completely cut off. But they continue to withdraw. And as the militia from all of the Charlestown Peninsula continues to retreat, Bunker Hill also falls. Basically, there's nobody there to defend it, so Putnam and Prescott have to pull their last few remaining men back, and the militia lose the entire Charlestown Peninsula to the British. At the end of the day, it's a British victory, but it's a Pyrrhic one. More than 200 British soldiers and 19 officers lie dead around Breeds Hill, with more than 800 soldiers and officers wounded. The colonists suffer fewer than 150 killed and 300 wounded. The Battle of Bunker Hill has proven two things. First, that the colonial militia is a more dangerous fighting force than the leadership in London had given them credit for. Second, that Parliament will crush the colonial militias if they so choose. Let's face it. By European standards, a battle of this size is barely worth being called a battle. The 13 colonies and their population of 2.5 million simply can't hope to compete against the mighty British Empire, which has around 7 million subjects in Great Britain alone. Maybe with George Washington in charge, they'll punch above their weight in terms of manpower and logistics, but the long game favors the British and their mighty empire and their massive fleet. On June 25th, General Gage sends his report on the battle back to Britain. The large loss of troops and the general embarrassment the British army has suffered at the hands of a few rebels appear to be the last straw. Gage is fired as governor and replaced by General Howe. To be fair, he seems to be a scapegoat for Parliament's failure to either appease the colonists or pacify them up to this point. But politics are what they are, and so General Gage exits our story. During the first year of the war, the Continental Congress begins to act as a de facto national government for the 13 colonies, especially in diplomatic affairs. They begin referring to the colonies as the United Colonies and reaching out to European powers. Most importantly, they're in communication with Great Britain, from whom they have still not declared independence. In their 1774 petition to the king, the one King George never received, Congress had blamed Parliament for all of the current trouble. On July 5, 1775, they ratify a document called the Olive Branch Petition, which blames corrupt royal ministers for the outbreak of violence and appeals to the king to intervene. Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this passage is the most illustrative part. Quote, Your Majesty's ministers, persevering in their measures and proceeding to open hostilities for enforcing them, have compelled us to arm in our own defense, and have engaged us in a controversy so peculiarly abhorrent to the infections of your still faithful colonists, that when we consider whom we must oppose in this contest, and if it continues, what may be the consequences, our own particular misfortunes are accounted by us only as parts of our distress. Knowing to what violent resentments and incurable animosities civil discords are apt to exasperate and inflame the contending parties, we think ourselves required by indispensable obligations to Almighty God, to Your Majesty, to our fellow subjects, and to ourselves, immediately to use all the means in our power not incompatible with our safety, for stopping the further effusion of blood, and for averting the impending calamities that threaten the British Empire. Thus called upon to address your majesty on affairs of such moment to America, and probably to all your dominions, we are earnestly desirous of performing this office with the utmost deference for your majesty and we therefore pray that your majesty's royal magnanimity and benevolence may make the most favorable constructions of our expressions on so uncommon an occasion. Could we represent in their full force the sentiments that agitate the minds of us, your dutiful subjects? We are persuaded your majesty would ascribe any seeming deviation from reverence in our language, and even in our conduct, not to any reprehensible intention, but to the impossibility of reconciling the usual appearances of respect with the just attention to our own preservation against those artful and cruel enemies who abuse your royal confidence and authority for the purpose of effecting our destruction. Attached to your Majesty's person, family, and government, with all devotion that principle and affection can inspire, connected with Great Britain by the strongest ties that can unite societies, and deploring every event that tends in any degree to weaken them, we solemnly assure your majesty that we not only most ardently desire the former harmony between her and these colonies may be restored, but that a concord may be established between them upon so firm a basis as to perpetuate its blessings, uninterrupted by any future dissensions to succeeding generations in both countries, and to transmit your majesty's name to posterity. Adorned with that signal and lasting glory that has attended the memory of those illustrious personages whose virtues and abilities have extricated states from dangerous convulsions, and by securing happiness to others, have erected the most noble and durable monuments to their own fame. Again, while some colonial leaders, most notably John Adams, are agitating for complete independence, that's not yet the official position of the United Colonies. On August 23, 1775, George Third delivers his official reply. This I will read in full because it's not too long. Quote, Whereas many of our subjects in diverse parts of our colonies and plantations in North America Misled by dangerous and ill-designing men, and forgetting the allegiance which they owe to the power that has protected and supported them, after various disorderly acts committed in the disturbance of the public peace, to the obstruction of lawful commerce, and to the oppression of our loyal subjects carrying on the same, have at length proceeded to open and avowed rebellion by arraying themselves in a hostile manner to withstand the execution of law, and traitorously preparing, ordering, and levying war against us. And whereas there is reason to apprehend that such rebellion hath been much promoted and encouraged by the traitorous correspondence, counsel, and comfort of diverse wicked and desperate persons within this realm— To the end, therefore, that none of our subjects may neglect or violate their duty through ignorance thereof, or through any doubt of the protection which the law will afford to their loyalty and zeal, we have thought fit, by and with the advice of our Privy Council, to issue our royal proclamation, hereby declaring that not only our officers, civil and military, are obliged to exert all their utmost endeavours to suppress such rebellion, and to bring the traitors to justice, but that all our subjects of this realm, and the dominions thereunto belonging, are bound by law to be aiding and assisting in the suppression of such rebellion, and to disclose and make known all traitorous conspiracies and attempts against us, our crown, and dignity. And we do accordingly strictly charge and command all our officers, as well civil as military, and all others in our obedient and loyal subjects, to use their utmost endeavors to withstand and suppress such rebellion, and to disclose and make known all treasons and traitorous conspiracies which they shall know to be against us, our crown, and dignity. And for that purpose, that they transmit to one of our principal secretaries of state, or other proper officer, due and full information of all persons who shall be found carrying on correspondence with Or in any manner or degree aiding or abetting the persons now in open arms and rebellion against our government, within any of our colonies and plantations in North America, in order to bring to condign punishment the authors, perpetrators, and abettors of such traitorous designs. George III sounds pretty upset. The Continental Congress sounded pretty reasonable what gives? Well, it turns out that on July 6th, 1775, the day after they signed the Olive Branch petition, Congress signed another document, the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms. Now, I'm not going to dig into the text of this document because we've been doing a lot of that and It mostly lists the same grievances against the crown as the Declaration of Independence. It concludes in part In our own native land, in defense of the freedom that is our birthright, and which we ever enjoyed until the late violation of it, for the protection of our property acquired solely by the honest industry of our forefathers and ourselves, against violence actually offered. We have taken up arms. We shall lay them down when hostilities shall cease on the part of the aggressors, and all danger of their being renewed shall be removed, and not before. The problem here is obvious. On the one hand, Congress is telling King George that they have no desire to be in rebellion and want him to restore peace. On the other hand, not only do they demand that the British army back down unilaterally, but they demand that all danger of renewed aggression shall be removed. It sounds like they're asking for the British army to withdraw entirely from the United Colonies, which is at odds with their claim that they intend to remain completely loyal afterwards. So, when you consider the two American messages to the crown in context it makes sense that the king would refuse to intervene on the Americans' behalf and would in fact clamp down harder. At the same time that they're talking to the British government, Congress is also in communication with the French. As early as December of 1775... French Foreign Minister Charles Gravier sends a secret envoy to meet with Congress and get a sense for what these Americans are all about. When the envoy returns to France, his report leads Gravier to conclude that it would be a good idea to aid the American rebels, and advises King Louis XVI to send them an arms shipment. In March of 1776, Congress dispatches Connecticut Congressman Silas Dean to France as an envoy, and he's able to close the deal. He also makes the acquaintance of an up-and-coming young nobleman by the name of Marie-Joseph Paul-Yves Roche-Gilbert du Motier, better known to history as the Marquis de Lafayette. We'll talk about him much more in the next episode, but if you're already a fan of this story, This is where Lafayette first becomes excited about the American cause. For most in the French government, this has nothing to do with American independence. It's not even on the colonists' official agenda yet, and from the French perspective, the revolt against Britain looks hopeless. What they're trying to achieve at this stage is a cheap way to keep the British Empire distracted and divided as long as possible. The French and British have tangled a few times over the past few decades, most recently in the Seven Years' War, which ended in 1763. The French have consistently lost to the British, and there's a lot of bad blood. Most of all, the French government fears the power of a Great Britain united once again with the Thirteen Colonies. It seems inevitable that in any future war the British will primarily use American manpower to fight in the Americas, as they have done in the past. And in the absence of any French holdings on the North American mainland, all of that American manpower would be turned against French colonies in the Caribbean. These colonies, among them Guadeloupe, Martinique, and saint Doman, which is modern-day Haiti, are incredibly profitable. Sending some weapons and powder to the Americans is a relatively small investment if it engenders more bad blood between the British and their American colonists. And so, Congress finally has more supplies to arm this continental army they've created. Outside Boston, General Washington is all too aware of the need for new armament. As early as the end of August, 1775, he orders a full inventory of the army's supplies. The results are worse than he'd expected. He knows his militias have very few artillery pieces, that much is a given, but it turns out that the gunpowder situation is also dire. The entire supply of black powder is limited to 10,000 pounds, about enough for each soldier to fire about nine rounds. At this time, raw recruits are expected to fire three rounds per minute, with experienced British regulars firing as many as six. Even if we assume that all of the militia are firing at the rate of raw recruits, that's enough gunpowder for any given militiaman to be in combat for three minutes before he runs out. Not a good situation if the British try to break out of Boston. Washington's army also has problems with disease. While they don't have germ theory back in these days, people do understand basic concepts like keeping clean makes you less likely to get sick and don't dig a latrine pit right next to your drinking water source. Unfortunately, the lack of a unified command makes it impossible to create a single organized camp. Each militia company sets up its own camp, and typhoid fever spreads like wildfire, mostly due to contaminated drinking water. One militia company sets up next to another one. They both organize their own camp, and you end up with a latrine pit from one camp next to a drinking water source for the neighboring camp. On top of that, there is a horrendous lice problem, since the New England men consider clothes washing to be women's work. They figure they'll have their wives clean their clothes when they get home, and in the meantime, there's certainly no water for bathing, so everybody's filthy. In his book, 1776, American historical writer David McCullough describes some of Washington's challenges with the American militia. Quote The troops were in good spirits, but had yet to accept the necessity of order or obedience. Many had volunteered on the condition that they could elect their own officers, and the officers in turn were inclined out of laziness or for the sake of their own popularity to let those in the ranks do as much as they pleased. Many officers had little or no idea of what they were supposed to do. The officers in general, remembered John Trumbull, were quite as ignorant of military life as the troops. Washington had declared new rules and regulations in force, insisting on discipline, and he made his presence felt by reviewing the defenses on horseback almost daily. New lords, new laws, observed Pastor Emerson. New orders from His Excellency are read to the respective regiments every morning after prayers. The strictest government is taking place. Those who broke the rules were subjected to the severest punishment or disgrace. They were flogged, or made to ride the wooden horse, or drummed out of camp. One man was whipped for making a disturbance in the time of public worship, Another for desertion. Another received twenty stripes for striking an officer. Another, thirty for damning an officer. But change was maddeningly slow in coming. As scathing as any eyewitness description was that provided by a precocious young New Englander of loyalist inclinations named Benjamin Thompson, who, after being refused a commission by Washington, served in the British Army, later settled in Europe, renamed himself Count Rumford, and ultimately became one of the era's prominent men of science. Washington's army, wrote Thompson, was the most wretchedly clothed and as dirty a set of mortals as ever disgraced the name of a soldier. They would rather let their clothes rot upon their backs than be at the trouble of cleaning them themselves. To this nasty way of life, Thompson attributed all the putrid, malignant, and infectious disorders that took such a heavy toll. End quote. Fortunately for the colonists, they also have some advantages. These men might mostly be farmers by trade, but 18th century farmers are used to tough manual labor. When Washington has them dig a network of defensive trenches around Boston, they do a remarkable job, so much so that the British don't attempt any further breakouts. Instead, they take advantage of their massive supply of gunpowder to fire at the militia with artillery, which is mostly ineffective due to the quality of the American defenses. Truth be told, it Seems that the British are waiting for the Continental Army to fall apart due to disease and the fact that the soldiers are volunteers with farms or trades to get back to. Throughout fall and early winter, both sides stare at each other across the siege lines, with neither side launching any major attack. On the British side, there's fierce debate. Many prominent Loyalist civilians are urging the new British commander, General William Howe, to have some men row south and occupy the Dorchester Heights. This is another peninsula, similar to the Charlestown Peninsula in the north, uh, but instead in the south. And it has hills large enough for the Continental Army to threaten Boston if they had long siege guns. But Howe decides that taking the Dorchester Heights is not worth the risk. As far as he knows, the Colonials have no big guns, and the fight over Bunker Hill has made him wary to engage them directly for no reason. Besides which, the colonists have not yet occupied the Dorchester Heights, probably because it's an exposed area where they could be vulnerable to return fire. Unbeknownst to General Howe, Washington has been hard at work obtaining his much-needed siege guns. Either Benedict Arnold or Colonel Henry Knox suggests to him that he bring in the cannons captured at Fort Ticonderoga. Regardless of whose idea it is, Knox, a young 25-year-old officer who until recently was a bookseller in Boston, gets the job. He travels south to New York City, where he catches a boat north to Albany and follows the portage trail to Fort Ticonderoga. Along the way, he hires oxen and workers to haul 59 4- to 24-pound artillery pieces across the snowy backroads and frozen rivers of upstate New York, crossing the Berkshire Mountains into Massachusetts, where he has to hire new workers because his New York crew went home. This new crew hauls the guns the rest of the way to Boston. Knox accomplishes all this in just 71 days, from November 17, 1775 to January 27, 1776, when he arrives outside of Boston. Knox's efforts impress Washington, and he continues to rise through the ranks during the war and will be present at several battles, including Germantown, Monmouth, and Yorktown, and he will oversee logistics for Washington's famous crossing of the Delaware River. But all of that is in the future now. For the moment, the Continental Army has their siege guns, and they need to somehow get them onto the Dorchester Heights where they can be of use. Due to the gunpowder shortage, remember this early in 1776 the Americans aren't getting help from the French yet, Washington opts to wait until he's shipped in enough powder from Dutch smugglers for his cannons to be useful. Meanwhile, Rufus Putnam, a lieutenant colonel from one of the Massachusetts regiments, proposes to use a trick he learned during the French and Indian War. See, The ground on Dorchester Heights is frozen, so digging in is not an option. Without defenses, any Americans on the hill will be completely exposed if the British send troops to push them off of it. So Putnam decides to pre-build a bunch of fascines, basically large bundles of sticks several feet long. These fascines will be reinforced and tied together by 10- to 15-foot wooden beams and can form a rudimentary defense that's tough enough to stand up to anything short of a direct cannonball hit. Best of all, Putnam is able to assemble these defenses far out of sight of the British. On the night of March 2nd, a handful of American guns open fire on Boston from the nearby towns of Cambridge and Roxbury. These siege guns can't fire with any accuracy from such a long range and elevation, but it's enough of a threat to draw British attention and attract return cannon fire. Washington repeats these bombardments on March 3rd and then again on March 4th. But it turns out that this is all just a diversion. On the night of March 4th, while the British are focused on the fire they're taking from the west, 2,500 colonial troops occupy the Dorchester Heights in the middle of the night and bring in the wooden fortifications and the cannons. When dawn breaks on March 5th, the British awake to see the Americans already occupying the position. They respond with a two-hour morning barrage, but once again their ships aren't able to shoot high enough, and the guns in Boston are too far away to hit the American fortifications on their elevated position. Admiral Molyneux Shuldham, commander of the British fleet in Boston Harbor, tells General Howe that his ships can't remain there if colonial forces are occupying the heights. It's Not that they can fire on the British ships with any accuracy, but if the ships just sit there for days on end, they're bound to score a lucky shot. Howe decides to row his men across the harbor and take the heights by force, much as the British had done at Bunker Hill. He assembles a force of 2,400 men to make the crossing, while Washington reinforces the Dorchester Heights to the point where it's defended by 6,000 militia. Washington also assembles a 3,000-man force in Cambridge to attack Boston via water if Howe rows his troops out, which Howe actually does at around noon. It looks like the siege of Boston is about to end in an epic fight with George Washington making an amphibious landing in Boston while General Howe and the colonists on the Dorchester Heights engage in a Bunker Hill rematch. But Mother Nature intervenes and a storm blows in in mid-afternoon, forcing Howe's men to return to Boston or take shelter on nearby Castle Island. The storm rages for 48 hours, and after this delay, Howe decides it's time to abandon the city. It's not entirely clear why he makes this decision. According to his own account, he believes that the delay has allowed the Americans to improve their fortifications on the Dorchester Heights. This doesn't make much sense, though. The same blizzard that made it impossible for his men to cross Boston Harbor would surely have impeded any colonial efforts to beef up their defenses. They'd be too busy shoveling snow. I think it's likely that Howe is concerned for the fate of the Loyalists inside the city. If Boston falls to an armed assault, there could be atrocities. And, in fact, how does guarantee safe passage for any Bostonians who fear retribution for having helped out the British. When his troops ultimately withdraw, they take with them around 1,000 civilian men, along with about 1,100 women and children. On March 8th, he sends a message to Washington offering to withdraw without looting the city as long as the Americans don't fire on any retreating British troops or ships. This letter is only addressed to the leaders of the colonial militia, not to Washington in particular, so he doesn't bother to respond. But he orders the Continental Army to hold its fire while General Howe secures his retreat. Howe tries to keep things orderly but unfortunately it becomes apparent that there are many supplies in Boston, particularly warm woolen fabric, that could be useful for the American militias. To keep these goods from falling into the wrong hands, Howe gives a shady loyalist merchant named Crean Brush the right to seize things from anyone in the city in exchange for certificates that amount to an IOU from General Howe. Spoiler alert, these certificates aren't worth the paper they're printed on. Worse, Howe's commission to Brush is vaguely worded and doesn't specify exactly what types of goods Brush is allowed to confiscate. So, Brush and his hired men go throughout the city, engaging in exactly the type of pillaging that Howe has been trying to avoid. This goes on for a few days, since the winds remain unfavorable for a departure. It's not until March 17, 1776, that the British fleet finally leaves Boston and sails for Nova Scotia. At this point, there are basically no more British troops in the northern half of the Thirteen Colonies, and so it shall remain for the next few months. During the Siege of Boston, the Continental Army also engages in a less successful endeavor, the capture of Quebec. In September of 1775, Benedict Arnold marches from Massachusetts with 1,100 men to follow up his victory at Fort Ticonderoga. They move north from there, along with a similarly sized army led by Richard Montgomery, and Irish soldier of fortune employed by the Continental Army. The idea is to hit hard and fast against the lightly defended Canadian garrisons and drive British forces out of the area before they have a chance to bulk up their defenses. Now, why attack Canada, you ask, when the province of Quebec has zero desire to join the 13 colonies? Well, Guy Carlton, the governor of Quebec, has been trying to stir up the Iroquois tribes to attack the American colonists in upstate New York and Pennsylvania. And if you kick the British out of Quebec, you don't have to worry about them causing any trouble with the natives. The invasion of Quebec is a disaster, Arnold and Montgomery steamroll over surprised British defenders at Montreal, but Quebec itself is prepared and better defended than they had expected. On New Year's Eve, 1775, in a blinding snowstorm, the Americans launch a desperate frontal attack on the city. Richard Montgomery is killed, Benedict Arnold's leg is shattered by a musket ball, and the Americans are forced to withdraw. The battle turns into a siege, and while the Continental Army does send reinforcements, a smallpox epidemic breaks out in the camp, rendering much of the army incapable of fighting. Meanwhile, the population of Quebec is fiercely loyal to the British crown. The colonists are partially upset about the Quebec Act, after all, while the people in Quebec like being able to speak French and practice their Catholic religion without harassment. Hardly anybody in Quebec wants anything to do with this rebellion, so the colonials can't rely on help from friendly citizens inside the city. In March of 1776, an impatient Congress replaces Benedict Arnold with General John Thomas, who is traveling north from New York City, but is delayed until mid-April by ice on Lake George. By the time he gets to Montreal, his troops' contracts are up. He tries to convince them to continue, but of an original force of around 7,500 men, only around 750 continue on the march north. By now, it's a moot point anyway. On May 6th, a British relief fleet arrives at Quebec, bringing with them 3,000 reinforcements. Benedict Arnold is forced to pull back. By early July 1776, colonial forces have been pushed all the way back past Montreal to where the front line had been before the expedition. Crown Point, just a few miles north of Fort Ticonderoga on the southern shore of Lake Champlain. As for the Iroquois, it turns out that the colonials have nothing to fear for the time being. At a diplomatic meeting in Albany in 1775, the Six Nations confirm their neutrality in the war. One Mohawk chief even characterizes it as a family affair colonists in the western reaches of the Thirteen Colonies will see a different version of Native American relations. With the British garrison suddenly gone, Mingo, Shawnee, and Lenape raiders begin attacking western settlements in late 1775. By the end of the year, the already small number of settlers in the new Kentucky territory has been reduced to only 200. This is a small part of the war, Trouble in the West will continue to grow and will have lasting effects on U.S.-Native American relations in the future, so it's worth putting a pin in these early raids. In the South, the first year of the war is mostly a series of Patriot successes. In Georgia, nothing happens at first. The royal governor even stays in Savannah, guarded by only a small number of troops, But when British ships show up in the harbor in January of 1776, the local patriots believe that this is a show of force from the royal government. So they put the governor under house arrest, but on February 11th he escapes to one of the ships. As it turns out, these are ships that have been sent from Boston to buy provisions for the besieged forces there. They are not full of troops. On March 11th, they sail up the Savannah River along with the governor's small garrison, and they load up on rice from the trade barges anchored on the river. The local militia fires from them from shore and dispatches fireboats and manages to capture or burn a few of the British ships, but most of them are able to escape to Boston with their cargo. They take with them the governor and along with him any semblance of British rule in Georgia. In Virginia, the royal governor, the Earl of Dunmore, is already unpopular when fighting breaks out in Massachusetts. He's a Scottish aristocrat who has already dissolved the provincial assembly in previous years and he's been waging a private war in the West against the Shawnee Native Americans, which is ostensibly to secure Virginia's territorial claims, but which patriot colonists allege is merely an exercise to keep the militia tired and worn out. On April twentieth, 1775, Dunmore orders the powder barrels at Williamsburg, a key supply cache, transferred to a Royal Navy ship to keep it safe from any militia. Less than two weeks later, on May 3, 1775, a militia led by local attorney Patrick Henry arrives in Williamsburg to arrest Governor Dunmore, who flees first to his hunting lodge and then to a Royal Navy ship and sends his family to the relative safety of New York. His small British force is able to raid inland and forage for supplies, but they're not able to do much else. In early November, the Virginia Assembly votes that Dunmore has resigned his position as governor by virtue of sitting offshore in a British warship. In response, Dunmore goes with the nuclear option he issues a proclamation declaring martial law, calling all loyal militiamen to join the British garrison at Norfolk and freeing all slaves in Virginia, provided that they come to serve with the British army. This last point is in some progressive move on the governor's part. He's desperate to get an army together, and freeing slaves will have the double effect of weakening Virginia's plantation economy. Even so, as many as 2,000 slaves do escape and take refuge with the British. By the end of the war, more than 30,000 will escape. Most of these people have no military skills and serve in non-combatant roles, but a few hundred escaped slaves are formed into the new Ethiopian Regiment. 20 of these men see action in the battle of camps landing a failed ambush by patriot militia against a smaller force of british regulars and the black militia however the regiment and british rule in virginia would be short lived on december 9, 1775 governor dunmore leads his men out to meet the rebel force encamped near norfolk But the Patriot commander, William Woodford, is aware of the coming attack and his men are ready for it. When the main bodies of troops exchange fire at long range, a small body of riflemen deploys in the woods to the side of the battlefield, and they start shooting at some British naval troops who are in the rear of the main British body behind a bridge. The riflemen have longer range than the British muskets, so they're able to pick off enemy soldiers at will. The naval troops fall back out of range, and seeing this, the main British force follows after. With the arrival of more Patriot militia from North Carolina in the following days, Norfolk is essentially under siege. So, Dunmore orders his entire force to evacuate by sea. During the process, his men take fire from patriots and buildings on the waterfront. So, he orders the buildings burnt down and even has his ships fire on some of them. And the fire ends up burning down not just the waterfront district, but most of Norfolk. Meanwhile, Hundreds of members of the Ethiopian Regiment die to smallpox while sitting on boats in the harbor. Dunmore joins his family in New York, but soon sails back to Scotland. And while he will serve as governor of the Bahamas after the war, he is the last British governor of Virginia. The story in the Carolinas is similar. And I don't want to get bogged down in a blow-by-blow recounting of every single military action in the American Revolution. Local loyalists rally to the small British force in Cross Creek, most notably a force of 3,500 Highlanders led by Donald MacDonald. But when they hear that they'll have to fight their way past Patriot militias to the coast to join with the main British army, Most of these would be Loyalist militia turn home. General Henry Clinton soon arrives from Boston to take command in the Carolinas, and he tries to move the British headquarters from Cape Fear to the more defensible city of Charleston. But Charleston is already in Patriot hands, and his assault on the city fails. And in early July of 1776, he sails his army to New York to join the campaign that's just beginning there. The only other important thing to say about the story in the Carolinas is that the British have been arming their Cherokee allies who live inland to the west of the colonies. With the outbreak of war, many of these Cherokee honor this alliance by forming raiding parties to harass colonial militia. This creates a lot of bad blood along what had been a relatively peaceful frontier, with results that last well beyond the American Revolution. And that's where we'll leave off on the military front for now, in July of 1776, which is an important month for the Revolution. Politically, we all know the rough outline of what happens in July of 1776. The 13 colonies declare independence from Great Britain. But how does Congress finally get to that point of no return? In the latter half of 1775, there are a handful of Congress members in favor of independence. In early 1776, Independence is the majority view. What changes? To begin with, there is that refusal of King George to accept the olive branch petition and his declaration that the colonies are in rebellion, but it goes a lot deeper. To begin with, there is a speech that King George gives to Parliament on October 26, 1775, where he says, quote, "It has now become the part of wisdom and in its effects of clemency to put a speedy end to these disorders by the most decisive exertions. For this purpose I have increased my naval establishment and greatly augmented my land forces. But in such a manner as may be the least burdensome to my kingdoms." I have also the satisfaction to inform you that I have received the most friendly offers of foreign assistance, and if I shall make any treaties in consequence thereof, they shall be laid before you. That last bit, the friendly offers of foreign assistance, refers to German mercenaries the Crown is about to hire to help put down the rebellion. Sending in British troops to restore order is one thing. Hiring foreign mercenaries to fight against your own citizens is another matter entirely. When word of this speech reaches the colonies, people are understandably outraged. Around the same time, Parliament throws more fuel on the Revolutionary Fire by passing the Prohibitory Act. This law outright bans trade with the Thirteen Colonies, but it goes further. It declares any ships found trading in American ports to be prizes of war, subject to seizure by the Royal Navy. Effectively, it's a blockade on the entire American economy. This is bad news for ordinary people. Think about it. The mother country has literally put an embargo on the colonies. This isn't a targeted military action against some radical militias. It's an attack on everybody, including loyalist citizens. But if you're advocating independence, Parliament has just given you a gift In a letter to Horatio Gates, who at the time is an adjutant general to George Washington in the siege of Boston, John Adams writes, In politics, the middle way is none at all. If we finally fail in this great and glorious contest, it will be by bewildering ourselves in groping after this middle way. We have hitherto conducted half a war, acted upon the line of defense, etc., but you will see by tomorrow's paper that for the future we are likely to wage three-quarters of a war. The continental ships of war and provincial ships of war and letters of mark and privateers are permitted to cruise upon British property whenever found on the ocean. This is not independency, you know. Nothing like it. If a post or two more should bring you unlimited latitude of trade to all nations, and a polite invitation to all nations to trade with you, take care that you don't call it, or think it, independency. No such matter. Independency is a hobgoblin, so frightful of mien that it would throw a delicate person into fits to look it in the face. I know not whether you have seen the act of Parliament called the Restraining Act, or Prohibitory Act, or Piratical Act, or Plundering Act, or Act of Independence, for by all these titles it is called. I think the most apposite is the Act of Independence. For King, Lords, and Commons have united in sundering this country, and that I think forever. It is a complete dismemberment of the British Empire. It throws 13 colonies out of the royal protection, levels all distinctions, and makes us independent in spite of all our supplications and entreaties. It may be fortunate that the act of independency should come from the British Parliament rather than from the American Congress. But it is very odd that Americans should hesitate at accepting such a gift from them. End quote. The last major factor that FLIP's Public Opinion in Favor of Independence is a 47-page pamphlet written by Philadelphia political activist Thomas Paine. Within a few months of its publication, this pamphlet, called Common Sense, sells anywhere between 75,000 and 120,000 copies. Keeping in mind the small size of the population and the fact that many people at the time read by listening to other people read out loud in a public space, it's safe to say that most people in the Thirteen Colonies read or hear at least a portion of common sense. In Common Sense, Paine begins by arguing that representative democracy is the ideal form of government, and criticizes the current British system as a bad combination of autocracy and democracy. Summing up, quote, "...that the crown as this overbearing part in the English constitution needs not be mentioned, and that it derives its whole consequence merely from being the giver of places and pensions is self-evident. Wherefore, though we have been wise enough to shut and lock a door against absolute monarchy," We at the same time have been foolish enough to put the crown in possession of the key. Paine then goes on a diatribe against hereditary monarchy in general. Compare this passage to the almost reverent tone the colonists have used towards the monarchy in their public communications to this point. Quote, No man in his senses can say that their claim under William the Conqueror is a very honorable one. A French bastard landing with an armed banditti and establishing himself King of England against the consent of the natives is in plain terms a very paltry, rascally original. It certainly hath no divinity in it. However, it is needless to spend much time in exposing the folly of hereditary right. If there are any so weak to believe it, let them promiscuously worship the ass and the lion and welcome. I shall neither copy their humility nor disturb their devotion. Quote. In the third part of Common Sense, Thomas Paine makes the case for independence and outlines his vision for a democratic government. In part, he argues quote, I have heard it asserted by some that As America has flourished under her former connection with Great Britain, the same connection is necessary towards her future happiness and will always have the same effect. Nothing can be more fallacious than this kind of argument. We may as well assert that because a child has thrived upon milk that it is never to have meat, or that the first twenty years of our lives is to become a precedent for the next twenty. But even this is admitting far more than is true. For I answer roundly that America would have flourished as much, and probably much more, had no European power taken any notice of her. The commerce by which she hath enriched herself are the necessaries of life, and will always have a market while eating is the custom of Europe. But she has protected us, say some. That she hath engrossed us is true, and defended the continent at our expense as well as her own is admitted and she would have defended Turkey from the same motive, for the sake of trade and dominion. Alas, we have been long led away by ancient prejudices and made large sacrifices to superstition. We have boasted the protection of Great Britain without considering that her motive was interest, not attachment, and that she did not protect us from our enemies on our account, but from her enemies on her own account, from those who had no quarrel with us on any other account, and who will always be our enemies on the same account. Let Britain waive her pretensions to the continent, or the continent throw off the dependence, and we should be at peace with France and Spain were they at war with Britain. End quote. He makes many similar related arguments, but The gist of it is all the same. Any benefit the United Colonies are enjoying as part of the British Empire, they can enjoy even more so as an independent entity. In the final part of Payne's pamphlet, he talks about why the time for American independence is now. He makes a handful of arguments for this and spends p- several paragraphs prophetically arguing that America is positioned to become the world's greatest naval power. But he also argues that while independence is inevitable at some point, it should come sooner rather than later. Quote, the infant state of the colonies, as it is called, so far from being against is an argument in favor of independence. Youth is the seed time of good habits as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interests, occasioned by an increase of trade and population, would create confusion. Colony would be against colony. Each being able would scorn each other's assistance, and while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wise would lament that the union had not been formed before. Wherefore the present time is the true time for establishing it. The intimacy which is contracted in infancy, and the friendship which is formed in misfortune, are of all others the most lasting and unalterable. Our present union is marked with both these characters. We are young, and we have been distressed, but our concord hath withstood our troubles, and fixes a memorable era for posterity to glory in. End quote. Common sense isn't an official document, but it has the sort of effect that a major news report or viral video might have today. Think of the video that kicked off the Arab Spring, Or if you want to go a little bit more old school, think of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. It changes public opinion as well as the opinion of Congress. But the Continental Congress has a little problem. They're not allowed to call for independence. Obviously, the British government would agree with that sentiment, but so would many in the colonies. Congress was established with the authority to coordinate a response to trade and legal disputes with Parliament, not to vote a new nation into being. And so, individual Congress members write back home, or even go back home, to ask their colonial assemblies to give them the authority to vote on independence. North Carolina is the first domino to fall. On April 12, 1776, they adopt what come to be called the Halifax Resolves. These resolves include a handful of resolutions, such as an official protest to the forced conscription of North Carolina residents into the Royal Navy. But most significantly, they include the following. Quote, Resolved that the delegates for this colony in the Continental Congress be empowered to concur with the delegates of the other colonies in declaring independency and forming foreign alliances, reserving to this colony the sole and exclusive right of forming a constitution and laws for this colony, and of appointing delegates from time to time under the direction of a general representation thereof to meet the delegates of the other colonies for such purposes as shall be hereafter pointed out. Between April and July 1776, over 90 state and local declarations of independence will be announced throughout the United States. On May 15th, Congress still doesn't have enough members authorized to declare independence to actually do it, but they do pass a preamble that outlines the grievances against the British Crown. This list of grievances written by John Adams is not all that different from the one that will ultimately be included in the Declaration of Independence. On June 7th, Congressman Richard Henry Lee of Virginia proposes a resolution to formally declare independence. The debate is heated. Many representatives, particularly those from the far south and northern New England, are still wary of independence. At the same time, representatives from Delaware, Maryland, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania are not yet authorized to vote on independence and threaten to walk out if the vote is held right away. Instead, Congress decides to wait for representatives from those colonies to get permission to vote, and the so-called Lee Resolution is tabled for the moment. From there, things fall together quickly. Over the course of a month, all colonies but New York have authorized their delegates to vote on independence, although some intend to vote against it. The only reason New York doesn't authorize its representatives is because it can't. British forces are moving towards New York City, and the New York Assembly is forced to evacuate, so their votes are delayed. It's only after the adoption of the Declaration of Independence... As a matter of fact, a few days later, on July 9th, that the New York Assembly is able to reconvene and votes to authorize their delegates to vote for independence. While Congress is still hashing out the details, they establish a group of representatives to cobble together a Declaration of Independence for everybody to vote on. Formed on June 11th, 1776, this group is called the Committee of Five, and consists of Massachusetts Rep. John Adams, Pennsylvania Rep. Benjamin Franklin, Virginia Rep. Thomas Jefferson, New York Rep. Robert Livingston, and Connecticut Rep. Roger Sherman. Thomas Jefferson writes the first draft, then revises it based on extensive notes from the other committee members. But even when the Committee of Five has agreed on a text for the Declaration of Independence, Congress needs to vote separately on whether or not to do this. So on July 2nd, 1776, they vote to approve the Lee Resolution, the one that had been tabled about a month prior. This is a lot shorter than the Declaration of Independence and simply reads, quote, Resolved that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, that it is expedient forthwith to take the most effectual measures for forming foreign alliances, that a plan of confederation be prepared and transmitted to the respective colonies for their consideration and approbation. On July 3rd, Congress debates the text of the Declaration of Independence itself. The text remains mostly intact with a couple of key differences. First, several references to the evils of slavery in the British Empire are removed, probably because it would look hypocritical. Second, a handful of grievances are also removed. These grievances are critical of the British public writ large, and Congress doesn't see any point in antagonizing the entire British public. Going to war with King George, Parliament, and the British military is enough of a challenge. Besides which, there's that whole Whig faction we talked about in Parliament that's far more friendly to Americans than the ruling Tory party. The actual date of the signing is controversial, with the two most popular dates being July 4th and August 2nd. Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, and John Adams all write that the Declaration of Independence is signed on July 4th. Unfortunately, many of the other signers either aren't in town on July 4th or haven't been elected to Congress yet. What seems to have happened is this. On July 4, 1776, 34 members of Congress signed the Declaration of Independence, enough to secure the vote. On August 2, the remaining signers apply their signatures at a full session of Congress. This delay also gives the New York representatives a chance to sign. Ultimately, the only member of Congress not to sign the Declaration of Independence is John Dickinson, a lawyer who authored the Olive Branch petition and edited the Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms. For him, it's a matter of principle. He believes the fight to be premature. But when Congress votes that No one who didn't sign the Declaration of Independence can serve in its ranks until the end of the current session for security reasons. John Dickinson leaves with grace. He returns to Pennsylvania and takes an officer's commission in the militia. With the Declaration of Independence signed, the die is cast. After listing their grievances against Parliament and the British Crown... The Founders write, "'We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states.'" that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. End quote. With the stroke of a quill pen, the Continental Congress has declared the existence of a new nation. With that same stroke of a pen the American Revolutionary War has just become the American War for Independence. It's been a good year for the Americans militarily, but trouble looms on the horizon. On July 3rd, 1776, as Congress is debating the wording of the Declaration of Independence, British General Sir William Howe is landing his army on Staten Island and laying his plans to seize New York Harbor for the British. Yet for the moment, a new American nation has just been born, the next step in a revolution that will change the world. And that's why it's relevant. Hello again. It's me, Dan. This is a friendly reminder that if you're only listening to the audio podcast, you're not getting all of my content. I also have a Patreon channel called Dan's War College. Each month, I break down a historical battle, weapon, or tactic and explain how it works. This is a video series with maps, graphics, and other helpful visual aids, and you can get it all for just $5 a month. We've done 10 episodes so far, and some of these have even been patron requests, because I do take requests. You can find the link to the Patreon channel in the episode description. And if you're on the fence, episode 5 of Dan's War College is currently publicly available, so you can check that one out and get a taste for what the channel is like. Of course, not everybody wants to spend $5 a month for a monthly video, and who can blame you? There are so many channels and subscription services out there that it's just impossible to sign up for all of them. But if you still want to support the show, you can share it with your friends or post a link on social media. Shows like this grow by word of mouth. And if the channel's growth is any indication, you guys are great advertisers. Thanks so much, and please keep it up. And if your podcast service lets you leave a review, please do so. If you want to follow Relevant History on social media, you can find links in the description for that as well or just go to Twitter and find at DanTolerPodcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can write to DanTolerPodcast at gmail.com. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. Tell me what you liked, or if you think I got something wrong, tell me that too you can also visit the show's website at dantollerpodcast.com once again that's dan t o l e r thanks for listening